What's up, everybody? Ryan here. Before I send you off to the special bonus content I have for you this week on Top Rope Nation, just wanted to give you an update on the show and what we have planned for the next couple of weeks. So, first of all, you may have noticed we don't have a standard show today in our normal flagship position. The reason for that, well, it's the middle of the summer, and myself, Justin, and Kyle, we've been traveling with our families. And basically this week it was nearly impossible to get everyone together to do a new flagship show, which is why I am going to be releasing a special bonus show for free to our entire audience for the very first time. More on that here in just a second. As far as the status of the show goes, got a lot of things planned in the coming weeks that I wanted to clue you in on. Uh, First of all, next week, I will be interviewing Mr. Steve Bell on the show, who has a brand new book out called Dynamite and Davey, looking at the careers of both the Dynamite Kid and the British Bulldog, Davey Boy Smith. I'm really, really looking forward to this one. I have been reading the book. It is excellent. If any of you have picked it up and you have any questions for Steve, send me an email, topropenation at gmail.com. I'll do my best to get your questions in on that interview. Like I said, I'm going to I'm going to record that early next week and then that is going to release here on our main feed in the usual Friday slot at the end of the week. What else do we have planned for you in the weeks ahead? Well, of course, SummerSlam is on the horizon. We're going to be getting ready for SummerSlam throughout the rest of the month. We're going to be doing a preview show, of course, a SummerSlam recap, and then the first show that we do in early August following SummerSlam is going to be a draft show. We haven't done one in a very long time. People have been clamoring for one over on our Facebook group. We're going to put that one up as a poll. The patrons of Top Rope Nation are going to decide what our topic is for our next fantasy draft. So that will be coming uh, at the end of the week of August 5th. So Friday, August 5th, that will drop. Uh, so yeah, I don't, I don't have a new show for you here, but I do have something that will be new for most of you, unless you're a patron of the show. So you've heard me release every single month these teasers of the Top Rope Nation classic shows that we do every single month for our patrons. And so one year ago this month, last July, we covered WWF Invasion 2001. It was the show that, of course, featured the WWF against the WCW-ECW Alliance. Kyle was at that show in Cleveland. This was a lot of fun. This is the first time I've released one of our classic shows in full for free here on the main feed since Christmas time last year. So this will be a good chance for those of you who are not patrons to see what we do over on the Patreon feed. Uh, There's over 30 of these in our archives on Patreon. And then, of course, we also do Top Rope Nation Extra in total There's more than 80 bonus podcasts on our Patreon feed. So we have been dropping, you know, a ton of new content on Patreon, even though we don't have a new flagship for you this week. Uh, Earlier this week on Patreon, Kyle released his thoughts on Money in the Bank. That was a Top Rope Nation extra. Last week, Kyle had patron of the show Rick Skelton on, uh, and they talked about a ton of topics. WWE, AEW criticisms, WWE era discussion. That was Top Rope Nation Extra. So there's a lot of bonus content out there for you if you're patrons. Hopefully you've had a chance to listen to all of that. If you're not a patron 
and you enjoy this full edition of Top Rope Nation Classics, know that every single one of these that we do is just as good as this one. If you want to hear them all, sign up to become a patron. The link is in the podcast description. Now, we know times are tough. Patreon might not be in the cards for everyone. Totally fine. Something that you can do to support the show that is completely free Subscribe to our YouTube channel. We were recently presented with an opportunity we thought was going to really help the show take off. And in the end, we didn't get that opportunity. And the reason we didn't get it wasn't because of our podcast. It was because of the YouTube channel and the fact that our traffic just isn't at the level that these people wanted it to be at. And so the best thing you can do to help us, go to YouTube.com slash Top Rope Nation. Subscribe to the channel. It's free. Tune into the shows in there once in a while if you'd like, but just in general, just subscribe. We're trying to build our presence on YouTube. Our podcast numbers are great. YouTube has been a growth in progress type situation. Uh, The people we were talking to about this opportunity, they're going to keep tabs on our YouTube channel and hopefully they'll reconsider bringing Top Rope Nation on board for something that would have been an awesome, awesome opportunity for us. If you want to help us get there, please subscribe to the YouTube channel that is also linked here in the broadcast description. So until next time, this is Ryan. Enjoy this free edition of Top Rope Nation Classics WWF Invasion 2001, and we'll see you next week. Welcome back to another edition of Top Rope Nation Classics here on Patreon. Kind of a landmark show. I just looked this up. This is the 20th edition of Top Rope Nation Classics over Mm -hmm. on our Patreon page. So thanks to everyone for supporting the show over there, making these bonus podcasts possible. If you haven't heard the other 19 editions, dip into the archives. Patreon.com slash Top Rope Nation. I can find them all tagged with the Top Rope Nation Classics uh, hashtag on the page but uh, this is going to be an interesting one it, it won the vote this month by a single vote for our july top rope nation classics and that is wwf invasion 2001 it beat out in your house canadian stampede uh, which came in number two thank you dominion voting systems <laughs> <laughs> no but uh in all seriousness you know this is obviously an inferior show to canadian yes. stampede but the three of us were talking last week, and I think we were looking forward to doing this more because we've talked a lot about 97, and I think the narrative on Canadian Stampede is written. This just then, it's a really good show. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, there's just so much more to talk about, and uh, there's a very kind of special component uh, that we'll get into a moment. In a, there's in a, a very good-looking man with flowing golden locks that was in the crowd for the show <laughs> my hair wasn't that flowing back then though. oh no i kind of like had it like real short it was bad move by me i don't know what i was thinking yeah kyle was there hometown cleveland ohio so he'll be, he'll be able to give us the live perspective similar to what i did when we did wrestlemania 22 uh back in april so yeah yeah we've talked a lot about canadian stampede in fact one of the first editions of top rope nation classics we did was SummerSlam 97 like kyle said we talked a lot about 1997 so this is a little more fresh for us thank you to everyone who voted all of our patrons are eligible to vote so we'll have the august poll up real soon for next month quick question um, ryan yeah, is yeah. this the first time we've ever done 2001 
I believe so. We've done 2002. Don't think we've done anything from 2001. No. That's what I thought, too. Yeah, pretty positive. So, yeah, dipping into a new era as well. So, I mean, with that said, what was the state of your wrestling fandom, as we often talk about at the top of these shows? I'll throw it to Justin first. Uh, Justin Joint, 2001, big-time WWF fan, I think, during that era, weren't you? Oh, yeah, definitely. This, Yeah, right in the midst of it. Um, I had Well, my cousin had a buddy who got every pay-per-view, so we'd always go over there and uh, catch the pay-per-views. And then I would just like to add, uh, thank God there was only one WWF invasion so that when I have to look for it on the peacock, I don't have to figure out what freaking season it is. Yes. Season one, episode one, invasion. <laughs> yes. Uh, Justin, we were also two months away from meeting as the show aired. Uh, we really? met in September of 2001. Okay. All <laughs> yes, right. we did. Yep. That's when I started working at the old store that we worked at together. So, yes, indeed. Kyle, 2001, where, where were you at in your life? Uh, summer between junior and senior year of college. I was about a month away from turning 21. So big things happening in my life at that point. And, you know, like Justin, and I'm sure like you, Ryan, I was a big wrestling fan, although as we'll get into over the next hour plus, my patience had begun to wear thin with the World Wrestling Federation a little bit sooner than most fans, I think, who are still with the product. You know, going back to the fall of 2000, things had irked me. I did not know this at the time, but it kind of coincided with Stephanie taking over creative. Mm -hmm. uh, Chris mm -hmm. Kresge had stepped down, I think, in the summer of 2000. And, you know, that, that first six to eight months of 2000 was just so awesome. It, as good a run as the company's ever had. But cracks started showing in the fall, and... Um, I've talked about it before. I'm like the only human being alive that doesn't think WrestleMania 17 is the best WrestleMania of all time. I'll get a chance to talk about that in this show. And in the spring uh, after WrestleMania, whoa, uh, the WWE, I was kind of scratching my head a lot. But as you said, Ryan, I went to this show. I was quite excited. And boy, was I let down at the end. <laughs> I understand why, as yeah. we will discuss. Yeah. Um, and the other thing, too, I just want to get this out of the way real brief. Cleveland, uh, as a market, I've mentioned this, I think, on the show, certainly in the Facebook group. We were a really lucky city when it came to live events. In 98, the two Raws we got were Tyson joining DX on the road to WrestleMania and Steve Austin beating Kane the night after King of the Ring to win the title back. Uh, so that was huge. It was another I, I, Raw 99. I was I should have just looked at Graham's site, but um, I didn't. I think it was the night after Fully Loaded because I remember chanting, I wasn't, but the crowd was, na-na-na-na, nah, 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 hey, hey, goodbye to Vince because he had mm -hmm. lost some stip where he had to go off TV. We had the No Mercy pay-per-view with Hardys and Edge of Christian. Mm -hmm. There was a Raw in 2000 and... Of course, fast forward to 2001, the night Shane McMahon uh, was at Nitro, the final Nitro, the simulcast, and announced that he was the new owner of WCW. Where was Raw that night? In Cleveland. Yeah. That was a I go was home to X, uh, X7, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Mm -hmm. And I was not at that show because I was in college at the time. I was, you know, it was in the middle of the school week, so I did not attend that one. But 
I was at this pay-per-view packed house. Cleveland was a great wrestling town. Like, you know, so many other towns were from 98 to 2001, but wasn't a great wrestling town for much longer after this. And boy, did they kill the town at the end of the show. You know, that actually explains a lot that, uh, all the luck Cleveland had with its wrestling events. Cause, uh, they definitely didn't have any with their sports teams. So WWF just must sapped all that luck away. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, this time there was no Browns. Cavs were a dog shit franchise. The, the, those years pre LeBron coming the first time. Woo. They reaped. The Indians were always good in the nineties, but they were kind of tapering off. I think around 2001, 2002, someone may correct me. I, I can't remember. I know they didn't win the world series. We'll talk about in a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. So how, how difficult of a ticket was this show? How'd you get your tickets? Where were you sitting? I don't remember how we got tickets. I don't think it was that hard though. I don't know if like we went to the ticket master office. So I went with Chad. We always mentioned him a lot on the show. Good friend of mine. Um, he also did not remember much, <laughs> which I think <laughs> to be honest, folks, I think we were both very high. Okay, at the time we're 20 years old, there yeah. is a very strong chance that we were both really high at the show. Because he, as a matter of fact, I was I, I texted him uh, a few days ago. I was like, "Hey, dude, uh, we're gonna do uh, Invasion 2001 for the pod. You got any memories of that?" And he goes, "We went to that show." Oh man! <laughs> so, so uh, not exactly a uh, fountain of information uh, was my <laughs> friend there that I was at the show with, but. We sat kind of like on the club level, so we were opposite the hard cam. I did not, I wasn't close enough to see if you're watching this on TV. And I had never watched this show back, by the way, since attending it live, which should tell the listeners a lot of what I thought of it. (laughs) But um, we weren't like in the lower, lower bowl, but like one level up, not like the upper deck, but it was kind of like that middle section. Mm -hmm. I remember having pretty decent seats. I figured out we were opposite the hard cam because I kind of thought back and you know, when Austin turned, um, spoiler alert, the angle that I was watching it at, and it was, yeah, the reverse of TV. So, okay. All right. Nice. Well, I would be interested to hear your take from the crowd as we go through these matches. Yeah. Sure. And, uh, I'll tell you this. Um, go the place, uh, before the show Gundarina is, it was then known huge lot. We get there and there's like a huge line out the door. Like people are just like, like, which was very uncharacteristic. Uh, they actually gave a shot of the arena outside during this pay-per-view. People could see it. And there's like, you know, like four or five steps and like this big area to mull right before you get in the doors. It was just filled with people. I'm like, what's going on? Uh, entire place was chanting RVD, by the way, which warmed me up a lot. Uh, that was one thing I was looking forward to seeing RVD live for the first time. But Either I had forgotten this or just didn't know, but thanks to the Wrestling Observer Newsletter and Mr. Dave Meltzer, he let me know why it was packed outside the arena that night and people were not filing into their seats. So uh, this is the July 30th, 2001 uh, Observer. A funny thing not noticeable on television is the stage crew was still working on the set, literally until the last minute. They were even working during the heat match, sawing plywood and hammering it together to assemble the left side of the V ramp. If you notice, Chavo Guerrero Jr. had to walk down the WWF walkway because the ECW-WCW ramp wasn't finished yet. The gates opened 30 minutes later because they were also still putting up the floor seats. 
WWF traditionally likes to book two days in the arenas for pay-per-view events with the first day being the setup. I'm getting there, folks. Wait for this. They couldn't in this case because the WNBA Rockers game the night before went long since it was in-sync experience night, which featured <laughs> a post-game party with the new in-sync album. The cleanup crew didn't even get started until 11 p.m. the night before, which explained the timing problems. Wow. What a time to be alive, wow. man. <laughs> Unbelievable. I got to say, worth it. I loved the uh, the stage. I thought the stage looked great with the, with uh, the yeah. separate entrances. Agree. It was unique for the time, for sure. Um, yeah, so should we get to, I guess, the state of the world? I guess for me, I, I should mention... I was entering my senior year of high school. I mentioned Justin and I were about to meet uh, at this part-time job. I worked out my senior year. Yeah, huge into wrestling in 2001, though. Me and like a core group of my friends hardly ever missed a show. I did not get this pay-per-view live, though. Um, you know, now with the network, it's hard for people to understand. But, you know, back then, you had to be kind of selective of what you were ordering. And I even thought, like, in the lead-up, the invasion, I, I kind of got into it when ECW was added, as we're going to talk about it, but I wasn't going to spend the money on the show. And I had, I had gotten into tape trading around this time, and I know I got I got it through the mail, like, that week, I think, from someone that I was, like, supplying me with pay-per-views through tape trading. Um, so I saw it, like, shortly thereafter, but I did not watch it live. Were you guys like me and the months after WrestleMania 17 you were kind of like scratching your head at the booking. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Like, like, did it feel for the first time? Hey, this company's not being booked well at all. Well, I'll tell you the only thing that I was excited about at the time was I was a huge triple H fan at that time. And a lot of people were like, he was on the rise. (laughs) I was really, I was really into triple H during that era. And, um, when he tore the quad, I remember it was like very deflating because they were setting up him and Austin feuding through the summer. Like that was, that was the working plan. And so when he got injured out, I remember it was like right at the end of the school year of 2001. And I remember first hour I was in this graphic design class and talking with my buddy and we were like, Oh my God, triple H got injured. This like ruins everything. We talked about like that whole next day. Uh, so like that, I remember that was deflating because I was really interested to see like the breakup of the two man power trip and all of that. But, um, I guess that's why they got to the invasion though, as we're going to talk about. And they did this instead because Austin Hunter had been the plan, you know, big summer angle until rock came back. So yeah, that was of course, uh, at the end of one of the, one of, if not the greatest match in raw history, uh, mm-hmm. Austin and triple H against Benoit and Jericho. Love that match. God, was I rooting for Benoit and Jericho hard. Yeah. Yep. So the state of the world at the time, really quickly, as we do the sporting world in 2001. Uh, So this was in July. So the previous month in June in the NBA finals, the Los Angeles Lakers over the Philadelphia 76, just four games to one. Uh, I guess that would have been the second of three straight for the Lakers at that time. Uh, We had the Stanley Cup that year, the Colorado Avalanche over the New Jersey Devils, four games to three. Your favorite memory from that series. Oh, yeah. I did not watch that series. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Super Bowl 35, a few months prior, Baltimore Ravens, one of the great defenses of all time over the New York Giants, 34 to 7. What a great quarterback and Trent Dilfer on that team. Always led the way, 34 points. Yeah. You always (laughs) see the list, though, of like the worst starting quarterbacks 
in, in Super Bowl history. And Trent Dilfer is always up there. But you know what? The offense scored that night, as he said. What? Was Kerry Collins not the quarterback of the Giants for that? He was. Okay. I, I, I was a fan for some unknown reason. <laughs> well, that night he didn't get it done. 34 nope, to 7. No, he didn't. That was a boring Super Bowl. Yes, I it was. watching that. Mm-hmm. Um, on campus at a friend's girlfriend's house. God, I was like in a coma. <laughs> and the 2001 World Series, so should mention, of course, 51 days after this pay-per-view was the September 11th attack. So, you know, kind of we're getting to this point where the whole world changes uh, about seven weeks later. So 2001 World Series is pretty iconic because the Yankees made it to the World Series and they face the Arizona Diamondbacks, though they did not win. Seven-game series. Four games of three. Kyle Ross, your thoughts on uh, Rudolph Giuliani? <laughs> Never really impressed me. Not sure what he ever did except throw on an FDNY hat and kiss Joe Torre's ass. <laughs> I knew that's exactly <laughs> what you were going to say, so I'd throw that over there for that. Um, in the in the entertainment world, okay, here we go. Number one movie, the weekend of WWF Invasion, Jurassic Park 3. Ew, seriously? Seriously. I think it was one was... week. Uh, the week before was Legally Blonde. This week it was Jurassic Park 3. The number one song at the time was You Remind Me by Usher. And uh, yeah, that kind of sets the stage as far as the the world of pop culture and sports. <laughs> Nothing sets the stage for the WWE invasion quite like Usher. Oh yeah. Gets you hyped, <laughs> man. <laughs> so should we talk, I mean, before we go back in time here to the event itself, should we talk about WCW, the closing of WCW, you know, what sets the stage for this pay-per-view? Obviously, as we just mentioned before, the go-home show to WrestleMania 17 in Cleveland, which was when it was announced that uh, the WWF had purchased WCW, uh, reportedly $2.5 million. Vince McMahon bought WCW, $2.5 million, March 2001. Um one year earlier, Time Warner had started shopping the company around for around $600 million. Um, but by March of 2001, any group that bought the company was not going to have television. So was that Jamie Kellner? Yes. Had made the uh, made the decision that they were pulling the plug on wrestling at TNT and TBS. And so at that point, the company pretty much became worthless because you're not going to have television. Um, Eric Bischoff was fronting a group called fusion media that was very interested in buying the company and i remember at the time you know reading the wrestling websites and stuff and at one point it seemed like that was kind of a done deal bischoff and the group were going to buy it, it seemed like it was going to happen but then when the story came out they're not going to have television obviously they weren't interested anymore so that's one of the reasons why well the main reason why vince mcmahon got the company for so cheap so here we are just a few months later and they do this invasion thing which is you know what wrestling fans have dreamed of for years yeah. and years and years uh but the problem was they didn't have the big stars you know from wcw ecw and yeah, they had some of those top guys but on the wcw side you know the major company you didn't have hogan you didn't have goldberg you didn't have sting you didn't have the outsiders so right off the bat i don't know how you felt about it kyle but it was, it was kind of a kind of a bummer you know like i was excited to see him do it but at the same time you know looking back now you kind of wish that they had waited until some of those other guys could come in um the reason they didn't come in is because they had hefty contracts with turner and they could sit on their ass and collect money so why wouldn't you do that you know (laughs) like unless wwe was going to buy them out which they weren't going to spend that kind of money to do at the time 
Uh, also, I should mention Ric Flair, obviously, wasn't part of this either. But Flair did come in in the fall of 2001, not long after this. So they could have waited a little bit longer and had Flair. Early 2002 is when Hogan and Nash and Hall came in. So they weren't that far off. Uh, but they weren't available in July of 2001. Kyle, um, your thoughts about the situation. So um, back to what we were talking about moments ago, about maybe souring on WWE booking a little bit. This is the first time, not the first time, but I, I think when the issues we see today really started to manifest, when they're kind of flying by the seat of their pants with the booking. They're mm-hmm. not showing a lot of patience. There's not a long-term plan in place. Uh, and when they do come up with a plan and it kind of goes sideways, they just blow it up and move on to the next thing. And that's kind of the story with this entire invasion. And the first three months or so after they buy the company, it is insane all the manifestations they go through, what they're thinking about. Uh, one of you guys said it earlier, all people wanted were to see big time matches between WWF stars and WCW stars. Um, we're going to hammer that point a lot, you know, during this program. But um, yeah, I mean, it stunk that they didn't get the big names, but some patience and some foresight, they could have pulled this off uh, easy. It was not the, I think the lack of stars initially was, as we're going to talk about when we, talk about the number that this pay-per-view drew wasn't really a big issue. Actually. I, I think people just love the idea of this angle mm-hmm, and yeah. you could have brought the big names along. If you just kept, did the logical stuff, kept the angle going till they were available. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Justin, what about you? What were your thoughts on this at the time or even now? I mean, I agree with you guys. Totally. I wasn't as, uh, really in tuned to like the quote unquote dirt sheets at the time. So I going into this pay-per-view, I was actually kind of waiting for the big names to pop up. I didn't know about, you know, the whole contract situation and whatnot, um, which that could be part of the reason for the big number that it drew is people were waiting for the Goldbergs and the stings. Mm -hmm. Um, I just wanted to add one little tidbit. You'd, you'd noted that uh, Vince McMahon bought them for two and a half million. Is that right? Mm -hmm. I, I find it so funny that, when uh, Hall and Nash came to WCW and they're basically portraying themselves as WWF guys and WWF sued WCW for this. I believe I remember the, the payout they got for that was $2 million. <laughs> so, so that alone kind of bought WCW in the end. I, I find that very funny. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the, the famous lawsuit that went on and on and on about, mm-hmm. you know, intellectual property and stuff went back. Yeah. It's kind of like, um, the Georgia Championship Wrestling time slot, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, before WrestleMania, when Crockett bought it from Vince, and Vince used that money to finance the first WrestleMania and essentially put him out of business. So yeah, it's kind of crazy how that stuff uh, comes full circle. I think. Look, we could go down so many rabbit holes mm-hmm. with the ideas for WCW. Um, I think we should do a Cliff Notes though, leading up to the pay per view. Um. The disastrous WCW angle in Tacoma. It wasn't an angle. It was when they chose to close Raw with a Booker T Buff Bagwell match. This is when things really start going sideways. And as you guys remember, you guys watched that live? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I mean, nothing has ever been universally crapped on by a crowd quite like that. 
I mean, the WWF audience is like, why are you showing us a Nitro main event with no build and Scott Hudson and Arne Anderson are commentating? And, you know, that was what caused Vince to rethink everything. You know, because the original idea was, and this is astounding to me, they were going to make Raw a WCW show and SmackDown the WWE show. Like that is so ass backwards. Well, mm-hmm. I just don't understand why they would give WCW a show like that. Like, I like, is this the first time that a corporate mentality clouded the proper creative vision? Because, like I just said moments ago, all wrestling fans wanted was the big matches. Let's cheer the WWF guys against the WCW guys. They don't give a fuck about brand extensions. Yeah. Okay. Or intellectual property. They want to see big time matches. They don't want to see like a brand be reborn. Well, except, you know, I was kind of in that camp of like, I thought if they could actually build up WCW, make it a show again. Cause for one, I loved the new WCW logo. I was like, yeah, let's roll with that. Oh no. But, I was yeah. going to bring that up. I was going to bring it. it up. Loved it. Uh, but if you if you can build that brand up where you can make like WrestleMania about, you know, this is the one time you're going to see these these two brands or TV shows fight, I, you know, that could have been a big deal. Yeah, Th- this was, you know, but once again, this is, you know, 20 years ago where we've now been inundated and beaten to death with this brand stuff. So yeah. it was <laughs> it would have been a little bit fresher at the time. Yeah. And what do we always say on the show? The reality of the brand split is much different than the theory of the brand split. Mm-hmm. The, the yeah. All the theories they tell you never pan out. The reality is it's, it's, it's not great for the fans. It just isn't. And yeah. th- this was, you know, they, they should have figured it out back here, but they were, they wound up doing a brand split uh, in much different fashion after this invasion angle was over a year later. But I don't know, man, I've just never been into brands. It is shocking to me that the simplicity of WWE versus WCW was just not the immediate go-to. You know, going back to, you know, the main culprit of all this is just their lack of patience and foresight. I don't think it would have made a difference just because Booker T and Bagwell weren't going to probably deliver what people wanted. But the following Raw after Tacoma, they were going to be in Atlanta don't you just kind of push everything back a little bit and get back into kind of WCW country before you really start hammering at home? Yeah. And on the Pritchard podcast, which I think we all listened to parts of today, like Conrad was like, why would you not, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, do an Atlanta, you know, I mean, Tacoma, not exactly the strongest <laughs> WCW. I think wasn't spring stampede 99 in Tacoma. Hmm. Am I thinking of that wrong? It might've been, I don't know. It was in some, they would run weird cities because of Zane Bresloff. But yeah, uh, Spring CP 99, Tacoma Dome, it, same venue. Yes, it was. That brain of yours makes me sick. <laughs> Sorry. But I mean, <laughs> still, I mean, I, you know, Atlanta would make a lot more sense. But again, I just think, you know, go back in time to like 96, if not even earlier. On WWF television, they had always portrayed WCW as the enemy. They always wanted their fan base to hate WCW. So the notion that their fans would then, after the purchase, be like, oh, yeah, we want to watch these guys and we're going to cheer for them is lunacy. (laughs) It's silliness. Why would you think that you taught your fan base? And I'm not disagreeing with the idea of treating having your fan base hate the competition. 
It's probably smart, but the idea that they're going to just like, oh, yeah, man, Booker T and Buff Bagwell, this is what it's all about. No, no one's going <laughs> to cheer that. What are you thinking? So they scrap the idea and for to make it a separate brand, and they come up with this NWO-style invading group, which is honestly what they should have thought of from the outset. ECW gets added to the mix. Ryan, you alluded to this earlier. I don't know if you guys have caught this, but over uh, on Between the Sheets, uh, you know, I'm not plugging, you know, people can listen to this if they want. There's this theory that Paul Heyman was anonymously sending in letters to all the wrestling websites around that time. And like, because there you would see all these comments. You know what this invasion needs is ECW. And <laughs> the rumor is, and Wade Keller talked about this too, that they were Paul Heyman burner emails. <laughs> Uh, Paul was obviously on the WWE creative team at this time, but I remember that the night that they did the ECW angle, they beat down Jericho and Kane and Mm. being fired the hell up. Yeah, that was really good. And Heyman gets in the ring. He's like, this invasion's just been taken to the extreme. Mm -hmm. Um, Then, of course, later in the show, ECW and WCW join uh, to make the lead heel group. Maybe, I guess that's done to alleviate some of the problems you mentioned, Ryan, about lack of star power on the heel side. Stephanie McMahon is brought back as the owner of ECW, uh, leading to one of the classic lines that I know Chad will be so happy I bring up. On the following SmackDown, they're all in the ring together, Heyman, Shane, and Stephanie. And Heyman introduces Stephanie as the new owner of ECW. And Stephanie goes, you know, Paul, you can call me one thing, boss. And Chad became just nauseous and just wanted to, like, vomit on it. It was such an unnecessary line by Stephanie. Just to, like, just shit on Heyman. Yeah, and there you go. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. But, um, oh, God, you got to watch YouTube for this stuff, folks. You got to watch YouTube. For I this inserted stuff. a meme there. Yes. Yes. So uh, that was, of course, only the second most offensive thing Stephanie said in 2001. The runaway winner uh, being uh, after the September 11th attacks when she compared those to her uh, father being indicted uh, for steroid distribution, which was one of the lowest moments in the history of broadcast television. Uh, But uh, ECW, we should talk about this because it didn't actually come up during the invasion pay-per-view. If you notice, they're not using the term the alliance yet during this show. Mm -hmm. Well. Until the end of July, they were allowed to say ECW, but there were some trademark issues going on, if you guys uh, remember, where they did not own the intellectual property to ECW. They thought they did because it was uncontested, but who owned it here? I can look it up because this was in The Observer, too. Yeah, I saw it in The Observer. Uh, Uh... The WWE reached a temporary agreement two days before the show to use the ECW name through 731. Trustee Barbara Blaber-Strauss, sorry if I butchered that name. I'm sure she's not listening. Uh, She should, though. Uh, (laughs) Maintained that the ECW intellectual property was owned by the estate of ECW and controlled by her, and the WWF's usage of it up to that point had been unauthorized, particularly after she received complaints about its usage from ECW creditors. So... This is act. This was not ironed out during the course of the angle, and is why they went to the generic term, the alliance. Why they just didn't pony up and get the intellectual property? Because the we'll get to, that's another reason this thing got water, the alliance. Mm-hmm. I mean, this isn't Germany, uh, Japan, and Italy. 
or whatever. Okay, this is not the axis of evil. It's WCW and ECW, the alliance. Should have gone with the dangerous alliance. Well, there you go. Yeah, there you go. That would have been. Then it good. would. Then it would have made sense for Steve mm-hmm. Austin too. Yeah. There you go. And uh. what a transition that is, because we cannot bury the lead here. By far the most controversial thing in my eyes of the spring of 2001 in WWE was Steve Austin turning heel at WrestleMania 17. A stupid decision, okay? It's an indefensible decision. And the numbers bear that out. People could check the Wrestling Observer newsletter, July 30th, uh, 2001 issue. Meltzer uh, rather eloquently states how it led to a complete downturn in business in all facets for the next Mm. three months. Particularly the house shows fell off a cliff in that spring. Um... But the week before this invasion pay-per-view, as we are about to get there, Vince McMahon wanted the old Stone Cold. And sure enough, he came out, stunned everybody in the WCW and ECW, and the crowd loved it. One, one of my favorite Raw moments ever. Yeah. And so you had a baby face, Steve Austin, leading Team WWE, or WWF at the time, versus WCW. ECW. We will not talk much about the Deborah kidnapping angle because that was very bad. <laughs> there so goes half saying, my notes. <laughs> so what you were saying is they were kind of gifted a redo there. Mm-hmm. After the heel turn was awful, this pay-per-view number shows that having babyface Steve Austin again, people were yearning for it, as we would find out, short-lived, as we'll get to. But they could have ran with it. They did not. And let's get to that pay-per-view number, shall we? <laughs> Because there's a lot of bullshit out there on the internet. Now, everyone will acknowledge this number. I did not listen long enough to the Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard to see if they talked about the number because I was so disgusted with the podcast, I had to turn it off. <laughs> did, did either of you guys make it all the way? Did they mention the number of pay-per-view buys it did? I never heard it. Okay, of course not, because it flies in the face of his narrative. So this showed it's 770,000 <laughs> pay-per-view buys. 770,000 pay-per-view buys. Let me put that number in perspective. That is the highest number any WWF pay-per-view has ever done besides a WrestleMania. Yes. 700. So I get what you're saying, right? And it's a prevailing theory that, hey, this they were so weak on star power on the heel side. Oh, my God. They, WCW had none of the big names. They didn't. But a heel team of Booker T, DDP, Rhino, and the Dudley Boys did 770,000. And before it was like, well, how about Team WWE? They probably drew that number. Well, okay, the four cornerstones, who's everyone's ass you want to kiss, okay, Austin, Triple H, Undertaker, and Kane, a month earlier, half that number. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. People (laughs) wanted fresh (laughs) matchups against the WCW guys. What does 770,000 tell us, guys? That, again, WWE fans wanted to cheer their guys in fresh matchups against the WCW guys. And the number one guy they wanted to cheer was Steve Austin. Yeah. Some more context. Yeah. As Kyle said, King of the ring the month prior, 445,000 buys judgment day. The month before that 405 backlash coming off of one of the best WrestleManias of all time. Backlash did 375, 770 which was more than SummerSlam did the next month. Which featured the return of The Rock. Yeah, SummerSlam did 565. That's down 200,000. That's That's 25%. That is incredible. 
So, so the narrative pushed by the Pritchards of the world, folks. Oh, we just didn't have no, fans. Just weren't buying this WC everything. Wrong. I don't know how many times he said, and I didn't listen to the full podcast, but in prep for this, but I listened to a good chunk of it, and he says over and over, nobody cared, nobody cared. Your your job is to make people care. <laughs> you know, like clearly they did care. Looking at the pay per view number, but you can't. You're the booker. You're in charge of everything about creative. You're on the creative team. That is your job to make people care. So if they didn't care, you're basically admitting you fucked up. So, I mean, yeah, I, I didn't get that. When it, when he just kept saying over and over, nobody cared about WCW. Nobody cared. Nobody cared. They did. People <laughs> Look at the numbers. loved the idea. It did it. Like, yes, over time, you would have had to add the stars. But if you get, here's the thing. If you get a hot angle rolling, those guys are egomaniacs. Mm-hmm. They're going to want to jump on board. You're telling me Hulk Hogan, if he sees a hot angle, is it going to beg to be a part of it? Do you know anything about Hulk Hogan? Well, Bruce mentioned that every time Hogan's contract was coming up, he would send out feelers that he was interested in coming in. So clearly he was going to be interested in coming in. This right? is a guy who once said a tweet, I got to work with these Bullet Club guys. Yeah. <laughs> yep. One of the most incredible moments in the history of Twitter.com. <laughs> couple of things I want to mention real quick before we get to the show, because they were in my head as you guys were talking. Great discussion, by the way. Always love listening to Kyle go through the, the history like that. Spring Stampede 99. How the hell did you know the venue for that, first of all? Oh, that's uh, a great show. That's the last great <laughs> WCW show. And if people but still, to know that, the they... venue, like, that's unbelievable to me. Um, but number two. All right. So I lost my train of, train of thought. Oh, r- if they were going to give the Monday night slot to, to a reborn WCW, the original plan, WWF was going to be the SmackDown time slot. Some, you know, It sounds weird because Raw is the flagship show, but it has to do with the fact that SmackDown was on UPN at the time, broadcast television. That was a more pristine uh, television mm-hmm. time slot. So that's why they would do that. Uh, number two, Justin Joint. You like that redesigned WCW logo? <laughs> yeah. I am shocked. Well, okay. Well, <laughs> number one, it, it was a billion times better than whatever that uh, the star trek looking one yeah, yeah that thing was horrible okay i will give you that i'll give you that it was and a as, major upgrade over that yeah as a rebranded logo it's not bad i guess just for me like if you you know for years you have been fantasy booking wwf versus wcw just give me the classic wcw logo on the posters and stuff to make it more real not this logo nobody has ever seen it, it makes sense i guess rebranding if they were going to make it its own brand moving forward but for this show i wish we could have had the old school logo on there i that i agree with that i agree with that i I just hated that that star trek wcw logo so much yeah that was not good i agree 100 agree all right let's do this let's get back in that time machine we're going back in time to a 20 year old kyle ross (laughs) and cleveland ohio it's sunday july 22nd 2001. My countrymen and my friends, I had hoped against hope that some miracle would prevent a devastating war and bring to an end the invasion. This most serious threat World Wrestling Federation has ever known. Today, unhappily, a fact. No force of nature and no action. 
So WWF Invasion takes place, as we talked about, at the Gund Arena, today known as the Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse. Uh, they drew 17,019 fans that night, a sellout. 15,535 of those fans were paying a gate of $848,060, and they sold $146,452 of merchandise at the event. As we talked about, 770,000 pay-per-view buys, and as the show kicks off, you get this very over-the-top pay-per-view intro featuring FDR's speech as the U.S. enters World War II. <laughs> he does not like war. You know, war is not good. What did you guys think of this intro? It was a little over-the-top, but it was okay. <laughs> it's effective for what it is. Yeah, yeah. I liked it. <laughs> I'm not sure that the... Uh, WWF versus Alliance storyline is comparable to World War II, but, you know, it works for what they're trying to set up. FDR, Kyle, as you mentioned in your notes, your last A-graded president of the United States. Did a lot better job with his war than Vince McMahon did with this one. <laughs> I, I, I got to throw in, because it was my favorite part of this, this thread. Uh, Ryan, you asked him about which president? JFK. And Kyle's response? incomplete <laughs> i know nobody tunes into this podcast for the history takes but for me and i know people always say jfk he was he wasn't even president his full term all this stuff dude they avoided a nuclear war it was the closest that the u.s ever got to a nuclear war during the cuban missile crisis you know we later found out there were subs in the gulf that were going to launch nuclear missiles at the united states east coast the minute we invaded cuba like many of the joint chiefs around kennedy were asking him to do he didn't luckily <laughs> avoid it so for me that right there gives him an a because the entire east coast could have been annihilated had he made the wrong choice there fdr pretty good president japanese internment camps we won't talk that about was that. not good not yeah. good i'll be <laughs> Fuck it, let's dock him too. <laughs> he gets some knock for that, but I mean, dude, he is—he uh, was a pretty, pretty darn successful president all around. And then we go to a tag team match. Now, I should also mention. I'll tell you, ah, yes, that's why you're paid the big bucks, Ryan Drossy, to make the hard left turn from Japanese internment camps to Lance Storm <laughs> and Mike Awesome. <laughs> no, I should mention too, though, that this this pay per view has an odd announced crew because yes. we got Jim Ross next to Michael Cole. The reason for that is um, Jerry Lawler was pissed off about his girlfriend being fired. Isn't that what happened? The cat. Yeah, he'd been gone for months. He, yeah. Heyman had replaced he him. Out. Yeah, and you know the two announced teams at the time were JR and Heyman on Raw, and it was Cole and Taz on, uh, or was Heyman doing SmackDown too? I don't think they had, <laughs> had Taz become a permanent announcer yet. I don't remember. Okay, but regardless, oh. yeah, 
Um, you know, so with Heyman being a part of the angle, they just threw JR and Cole together. How many pay-per-views in history were just Jim Ross and Michael Cole? Can you name a second one? It's an interesting one for sure. I don't know if I can name a second one. That was just those two. There was probably one at some point, but it's, it's escaping me. Please send us uh, the notes. folks. He did. So Taz looked it up. Taz joined SmackDown in February. Oh, one. He'd been doing Sunday night heat back in October, okay. 2000. So yeah, he had, he had, okay. Uh, uh, but yeah, it's a, it's an interesting broadcast crew. And then we get this tag match um, right off the bat. Good old Lance Storm being serious for a minute here. Uh, I always like that bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the match itself, you know, so you got, here's a, here's a problem with the show. Edge and Christian have been heels recently, but you're asking the crowd to cheer for him because they're taking on the Alliance, which puts the fans, you know, in an awkward situation because you've been wanting them to be booed for a while. And now here they are working against Mike Awesome, rest in peace, by the way, and, and Lance Storm. But the match itself is is a pretty solid opener. And when we get into these undercard matches, there's not a lot of good, to be quite frank. But this one was pretty, I like this match. What did you guys think of it? Justin, I'll throw it to you first. Yeah, uh, I was kind of shocked as to how much the crowd was into this. I mean, uh, props to all uh, Kyle and all you other Clevelanders. You were ready for this show. Um, it was something I noticed, and I, and I saw it in Kyle's notes also. It just kind of skipped uh, yeah. Awesomes and Storm's entrance. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, yeah. I was just curious if that was a peacock thing, if maybe there was a sign they didn't That's what like. I was thinking or... too, like a sign in the crowd. You will not believe the sign I brought to this show, guys. Oh, you had a sign? <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It wasn't me. <laughs> you, you know what the best sign I saw was? And I think it was during this match. Somebody in the front had a sign that it was two sided. And on the front, it said, I heart you, Trisha. And then, like, it, the camera cut away to the match for a little bit, and it came back, and he had flipped it around, and it said, "Leave your husband, Trisha." <laughs> That's awesome. That is unbelievable. What a great sign! <laughs> the, you know, I know signs have become very passe and not like people are like, "Oh, I couldn't see over them." I kind of miss signs sometimes. At least, like, I like watching the TV when there was a lot of signs and it's not obstructing my view. Because I, I like the non-wrestling related signs, like Justin just mentioned. You know, when somebody be like, "You know, I was stupid and had to have the arrow point to the guy next to him." That was good. But yeah, I noticed that jump cut too. I have no idea what was going on, Ryan. It- you. No, go ahead. A, I was just gonna say it happened a few times in the show where it just yeah. seemed like there was like a like 10 seconds just cut out. Yeah, I think Raven's intro happened. Yes, too. yes, yep, uh, yep. I think I noted. But um Ryan, you mentioned Lance Storm's bit, the if I could be serious for a moment. He was one of the real highlights of that just dreadful Vince Russo era of Nitros mm-hmm. in 2000. Um, Mike Awesome, here he was a guy you had to play to his strengths. Look. There are matches of Mike Awesomes that I absolutely adore. Most of them are against Masato Tanaka. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but you had to structure the match where it was, you know, a hardcore style match, lots of big bumps. And WWF was simply just not going to cater to Mike Awesome's strength. I mean, as a matter of fact, he was one of the first guys from the WCU group to, like, get kiboshed, wasn't he? Like, he didn't last that long. No, he wasn't. Yeah, he wasn't. Around. I feel like. I, I don't even think he was around by the end of this angle. Maybe he was. Like, it's, was was he still with the company even at Survivor Series? I don't I, think so. Yeah, I mean, I can't remember anything else Mike Awesome did. Although, apparently, he did win the hardcore title at Madison Square Garden before this because Jim Ross referenced it. So, I'm not going to say he was making that up. That is something I had no recollection of. 
Uh, I did remember Edge winning King of the Ring the previous month. Uh, you had mentioned how they were a heel team still, Edge and Christian, Ryan. And what they had been building to on TV, I'm sure you guys remember this, was Christian was going to turn on Edge. And you wouldn't have known that by watching this match at all because there was really no friction. Christian did botch a spot early in the match. Uh, but, you know, uh, Edge and Christian go over clean. I kind of liked the finish mm-hmm. where Awesome was going for the Awesome Bomb. Uh, and then we got the spear. And uh, who did the spear? Was it Edge? I think it was Christian. Oh, I yeah. I, I, okay, that's what confused yeah. me. I was like, did Christian do the spear? Do I mm-hmm. just remember that? And Edge falls on top uh, for the pin. Um that was okay. Uh, Edge and Storm wound up being the IC title match at SummerSlam. Believe it or not, Lance Storm wins it uh, from someone we'll talk about later on who I can't believe had the Intercontinental title. I know Justin Joint is frothing <laughs> at the mouth to talk about that title reign. But, uh, you know, I, th- I, I have this in my notes. I put this because I wanted to talk about this. We talked about that greatest tag teams list mm-hmm. a few weeks ago uh, on the show. And a thing with Edge and Christian is – you know, I was maybe a little like a couple spots lower on them than you guys were. It always felt like they just wanted to break up this team, didn't they? Like they just were just looking for that excuse to push Edge as a single and just throw Christian to the wayside. I think that was something that always kind of clouded my vision of that team. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, you know, and speaking of that, I was actually kind of surprised watching the show and and knowing that Edge had just won King of the Ring that they didn't try and maybe shoehorn him into that uh the main event as one of the five maybe get Kane out of there or something to keep pushing him because they obviously had big plans for him Mm -hmm. yeah that whole that was a weird king of the ring tournament yeah remember like kurt angle was in it and then he also wrestled a separate match against shane mcmahon that was an odd king of the ring i looked up uh mike awesome's history with wwe and yeah right after this he basically started working on the B shows. He was on velocity a lot. He got injured in November of 2001. Mm. Uh, They brought him back on SmackDown in July of 2002 and he was released in September of 2002. Okay. So yeah, mostly work in velocity. Okay. Longer than I remember, but a lot of that was due to injury. So yeah, but he did. I mean, he had the distinction. He was the first person from the Alliance to gain gold, as you mentioned with the hardcore (laughs) belt. (laughs) That was his, uh, that was his claim to fame during this era, I guess. But yeah, like I said, it's it's an okay opening match. Uh, the Observer, Dave, gave this one two and a half stars, 10 minutes and 10 seconds. It's a fair rating. Yeah. yeah. Then they go into um, a referee match. Well, Earl first, Hebner- what, about, what about Vince McMahon making these George Washington Revolutionary <laughs> War references backstage to Regal? That was actually kind of funny. It. I liked it. <laughs> and Vince like kind of caught himself realizing he's talking to an English. He's like, well, maybe that was the wrong thing to say. Yeah, that was all right. I like that. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have Vince, you know, going around backstage throughout the show trying to hype up Team WWF. I like that. That was a nice touch. Uh, some entertaining stuff. So a, a few entertaining segments. I like when he imitates uh, Chris Jericho. We'll get to that later. But uh, yeah, so we get to this referee match. Not the greatest here, uh, but the fans were into it, Kyle. Do you remember this in the crowd that people were into it? Because it's, I mean, watching Earl Hebner take on Nick Patrick, <laughs> the former NWO referee. Uh, I mean, it's only, it's just under three minutes long. And Mick Foley's out there as special referee. Uh, but I mean, the crowd was hyped. <laughs> yeah, Earl Hebner was very over. Not as over as Mick Foley, but he was uh, over. Uh that took me aback a little bit um, that this match had heat. Uh, this was not a match that I remembered, quite frankly, at all. Uh, what an angle. Building up the two referee uh, 
groups feuding WWF and WCW. Um, people may have forgotten this. Nick Patrick, the son of the assassin Jody Hamilton, did wrestle some uh, very uh, long ago before he became a referee, like the early 80s. So he had some wrestling experience. Earl did not and was blown up very quickly in this match. <laughs> I mean, real quick. I it mean, was like, not great. I mean, yeah. he made it seem like the ultimate warrior could do an Iron Man match. <laughs> I mean, he was blown up that quick. It was. It was bad, but he was over, and he got obviously he got the win. You know, Foley set the WCW reps away at one point after some interference. We get the bowling shoe ugly reference from Jim Ross and a mandible claw Nick Patrick afterwards. Thank you, drive through. Yes, and so after this, did we have any backstage? I'm sure we had some backstage segments. What do I got in my notes here? I believe they were hyping up Kidman that Kidman needed to save the day. Is that right? No, that or wasn't quite missed? yet. I, I okay. think I, okay. I don't think there was a backstage segment before the next match. Uh, they showed a promo of uh, Tough Enough. This was the first season uh, of Tough Enough that was airing at the time. So you get Maven on your screen. You get Chris Nowinski. Uh, some of those highlights that takes you back. I, I I don't know. I watched that first Tough Enough season quite a bit. By season two, I was kind of dropping off. The first season of Tough Enough was okay. Yeah, but. The second, yeah, it, it ran its course. This is also where they showed the clip uh, in catering where we've got Deborah talking to Sarah. Sarah oh. being the Undertaker's wife. Uh, at the time, feel longtime fans will remember, the Undertaker used to have Sarah tattooed across his throat. Wise decision to uh, get rid of that. Sarah did not have a lot of charisma, fellas, on the screen. Uh, definitely a charisma vacuum here. She refers to her husband as Mark. Uh, they're talking about the whole Diamond Dallas Page thing. <laughs> what did you guys make of this? It's pretty bad. Uh, as bad as the Deborah kidnapping angle was, that's pretty much been long forgotten. I'll be honest with you. I, that's not something like if you've been like, if you would have brought that up to me without watching the show, I'm like, what? They mm-hmm. kidnapped Deborah. DDP kidnapped Deborah. But man, the whole treatment of DDP was just such bullshit right off the rip. Like, yeah. First of all, and I'm going to make this comment, and I'm not going to run from it, okay? it <laughs> DDP was someone who wrestling fans knew, WWE fans knew him, and they knew that he was married to Kimberly. It was completely ridiculous that he would want The Undertaker's less attractive wife. <laughs> okay? I'm sorry. I said it. He's not married to her anymore. You shouldn't, there should be no hard feelings. Okay? It made no sense. Kimberly was better. Like, it made no sense. Just have him come in and diamond cut The Undertaker and say, I'll make you famous. Why did he have to stalk his wife? And Bruce Pritchard, defending that creative, was nauseating. When when she came on the screen at first, and I was, you know, I was kind of watching, but it was in between matches, so I was kind of doing some other stuff. I had to, like, think, who is that woman again? Like, it didn't even come to me at first. And then I remembered that, oh, yeah, they did put her on TV for a while. And not not great. Not great stuff. Uh, well, also... Yeah, All ahead. I want to know is, is the Sarah neck tattoo the first or second worst neck tattoo in uh, wrestling history? <laughs> well, it's probably the second because it's, it's not there anymore, right? <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's not there. Yeah, this is... Good call on that. I had totally forgotten about that. I didn't mark. I remember watching the segment, but I didn't mark it down here in my uh, run sheet, Tony. <laughs> yeah, so uh, DDP, real quick. The fact that that new theme song they gave him was absolutely atrocious. Like, one of the big draws of DDP was the Smells Like Teen Spirit knockoff. Like, to get rid of that theme, freaking awful. Oh, man. All right. So, after this, we go to the two tag team champions taking on each other. It's APA. That's Bradshaw and Farouk. 
the WWF Tag Champions taking on uh, Jindrak and O'Hare, the WCW Tag Champions. Uh, not a unification match or anything like that. But, was it, it was Chuck Palumbo, right? Not Mark Jindrak. Oh, did I? Did I let's not get Jindrak? our power. Let's not get our power plant guys mixed up. <laughs> <laughs> yes, let me rewind that. Hold on. <clears throat> did I have that wrong? Yeah, Sean O'Hare and Chuck Palumbo. Yeah, taking on Bradshaw and Farouk. So. It's okay. I, I've said this on the show before. I was not a big APA guy. I don't know about you guys. I don't think either of you really were. I mean, O'Hare and Palumbo were an okay team, but this is just this is a pretty average to below average match, I thought. I, I liked APA, but just for backstage segments, I didn't need them as tag champs in long matches. Yeah, I, I was shocked that they were the tag team champions here. Yeah, same here. Was same it here. like the brothers of destruction and the two man power. Tri- yeah, they were. And then like Benoit and Jericho mm-hmm. had them. How did it get to APA? That's something I got no recollection of. Uh, something that did not shock me was the APA's complete lack of selling in this match. Um, <laughs> I mean, they were just not interested in putting O'Hare and Palumbo over in the least. And this match honestly was just a complete burial. Uh, WWE three and O by the way, at this point, yeah. not the best way to get over the invading heel group. I don't know Chavo one on the pre-show as we mentioned earlier, but, um, as far as the pay-per-view proper, yeah, it's three straight WWE wins guy. I want to talk about Sean O'Hare. One of the great, what ifs he was a guy that if you remember, you talked about Bischoff wanting to buy the company. O'Hare was going to be one of his key guys. Mm-hmm. He talked about, and he had a great look and remember they gave him that little bit of a push a couple of years. They gave him that weird gimmick. It was like oh three in WWE. Yeah. Remember, he like he came, he was like doing these things. He's like cheat on your wife if you want to. Those weird vignettes. <laughs> um, yeah, he had a great look, but it, it just never worked out for him. Yeah. All right. So yeah, WWF three and zero at this point. Anything backstage after this? Yeah. This oh this is where Vince is backstage with Jericho. Uh, and he talks about how he, he basically does a whole Jericho bit team WCW and ECW will never be the same again. Just like Jericho. That was, that was amusing. I liked it. It was all right. Jer- uh, Jericho's Paul Heyman thing was kind of bizarre. Like wasn't that talked- kind of his, that was kind of his thing at the time though. Wasn't it just breaking out of thesaurus and yeah, saying was, the same thing a million times. Yeah. He was talking about, you know, how ugly Paul was Trek, inside yeah. compared to the outside. And then, yes. And that's then at, up next is, as Justin mentioned, when we got the, it's all up to Billy Kidman, future WWE agent, Billy Kidman, yes. Uh, yes. to turn the tide of the invasion. Yeah. So Shane and Stephanie are, are backstage talking to Billy Kidman, trying to get him pumped up. They need a win. And, uh, you know, this, this match is Okay. Uh, we've got the WWE light heavyweight champion X-Pac taking on the WCW cruiserweight champion and Billy Kidman. I always thought Billy Kidman was a really solid wrestler. I remember, you know, when he first started getting some TV time in WCW, well, some of that's the shooting star too, <laughs> but like being entertained by his matches, but he didn't have, I don't, I don't know how to put this. He didn't have like a, a great feel for like the television product. And you see that in his entrance. Like when he comes out, he doesn't do much in his entrance. He gets into the ring. He kind of like puts a foot on the rope and like throws his arm up. But it's like so quick, like the camera misses it. And that's it. Like that's his entrance. He did. He just didn't have like a lot of presence about him. But he was always a very, very solid wrestler in the ring, which is why he's a road agent today. So, so he's high flying Dean Malenko. 
pretty much another pretty future much. wwe agent but obviously. you know like i just noticed it because it's like that's one of the things they teach at nxt at the performance center is how to work the cameras especially the hard cam you know like he comes to the side of the ring of the hard cam in his entrance and like they ba- you barely see anything he like he throws his hand up kind of and turns around right away uh, the, but th- yeah the the most jarring thing for me is i always kind of hated the the jean shorts and uh wife beater shirt and, and this this look was even worse to me for some reason yeah like, like the tights were like shorts but they kind of went up to his belly button and they just kind of made him look thick mm-hmm. and generic Love like handles. he just looked yeah. like he looked like a creator wrestler in a yes. video game right like yeah. just like you look like a guy that you just beat like in the first level or something like that you're right i, I was ever a white beard friend i liked his flock look you know he would just come yeah. out like confused like rubbing his hair and stuff and he would just do the shooting stuff for i mean obviously he needed to change that over time but yeah it's funny um people thought he needed to change his look from wcw he does here and it was just a very generic generic look although i did always like his entrance music i was gonna call that out because it had like a very indie rock sound to it it was almost like kind of fuzzy it didn't have like this mm-hmm. the same production value of most of your theme songs so it kind of stood out it's a little repetitive but i always liked it i always thought that, that was a nice touch and that was the same theme he was using in wcw wasn't it i believe so yes yes he brought that over so that was nice um yeah the match it's it's pretty good uh so kidman like the highlights for me uh kidman flies off the top rope but is grabbed by x-pac who delivers an x-factor that's a cool spot for a two count uh, right after that, Kidman dodges a Bronco Buster, and that's when he hits the Shooting Star Press for the pinfall. So it's the first WCW-ECW victory on the show. Billy far... Kidman has stemmed the tide. Yes. <laughs> um, no- two... Notable that this is the first time that the crowd is shitting on a WWF performer. Yeah, this is when X-Pac was doing the whole X-Factor thing, which I kind of forgot about. The entrance theme is... Eh. It's okay. Once it kicks with the in, X the, Factor, the, no, the it's beginning, shitty. the beginning it's with shitty. like that weird singing is kind of odd. Like it takes a little bit to like get to the point where it sounds like a theme song that would hype you up for a match. Uh, <laughs> not great. Um, but the oh, match. I, is I gotta look. I gotta look up something here so I don't make an inappropriate joke. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited. Well, let me just say, seven is Uncle Cracker dead? No, oh, he's not. God. Okay, no, he's oh, not. So, um. I do not have to say God rest his soul, but I can say his music sucked ass. <laughs> Wait, did Uncle, Uncle Cracker Cra- do this theme song? Yes. Really? I didn't I didn't remember that. He did or no, he did the one X Factor theme song. I was might it? have I don't know. It, it sounds right. I think that's probably right. Yeah, Just that was going on in my head what it sounded like. Yo, you dealing with the X Factor. I got everything I ever Yo. wanted, and I'll never Yo. give that back. Yo. Oh, I know you hate that Factor, but you ain't gotta look at me like that. I said you ain't gotta look at me like that. What you looking at? Uh, yeah, two stars from Dave and the Observer. Yeah. Uh, we need to jump on that point that Justin made about X Pac. Um, you know, not being treated as the baby face at all uh, quite the opposite by the live crowd. He was definitely the one guy in this feud that like, it didn't matter who he was in against the, the fan base didn't want to shit from. He was remember X-Pac heat. That was mm-hmm. like a big thing on the mm-hmm. internet around this time that like people just didn't want to see him. I know he's well-respected. Um, you know, I've gained a, or kind of rediscovered maybe an appreciation for his earlier work 
as one, two, three kid, but I freaking loathed X-Pac in 2001. I remember live, like wanting him to lose so bad. And I was so <laughs> glad that he jobbed clean here um, because, yeah, I just, I what? hated X-Factor, just hated X-Pac at this point. Is that is that what it was the whole X Factor bit? Like what? I mean, he was good in the ring. It was just, I, I, I was the same way. I, I no interest in seeing him in any kind of matches. I think he was like a guy who was pushed more than he was over, and it was like that. Remember when WWF was really rolling? You didn't have that guys. You know, the, the right guys were getting pushed mm-hmm. when the company was really moving, and he was a guy. You know, in that 2000, 2001, he would trade wins with the likes of the Jerichos or the Benoits. Yeah. Or the great, and people didn't really want that. They didn't want him in that mix. <laughs> like, they'd be cool if he like lost to those guys on TV, but they didn't want him winning or certainly pushed. Yeah. And of course, he was still friends with Triple H. Was, that's why he was pushed. <laughs> Explains a lot. So, yeah, two stars in the Observer for that. Uh, and following this match... We get into just a terrible spot. So it is it is three matches in a row that are all very bad. By the time you get to the one after that, you're ready for something good. And you get something very good. But the next three matches, you get Raven and William Regal. You get a uh, six-person tag with Canyon, Hugh Morris, and Sean Stasiak against Albert, Billy Gunn, and The Big Show. And Tajiri against Taz. The one Billy Gun. The one Billy Gun. Yes. Woo. Um, man, this is a bad, bad stretch on the show. Uh, Raven and William Regal, Justin. When we we were watching the show almost simultaneously the other night and texting during this mm-hmm. match, and uh, nothing connects here, man. As something's off, it is not good. Which is too bad because I was really into both of these guys. Yeah, they just didn't have any chemistry in the ring. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you just say that. I'm thinking. You think about their careers, the way they like to work. It doesn't really mesh, does it? Like Regal no. wants to do the t- kind of technical, you know, old TV title style match. And Raven wants to do a hardcore match with a lot of like kind of creative spots. Um, yeah, it was just an odd pairing. I think, was this match thrown together at the last minute or was this always booked? I can't this was remember. added late, I believe. Okay, yeah. mm-hmm. so that explains a lot too. Raven, or pardon me, Regal. Yet another WWE heel that's just kind of playing de facto babyface due to the angle. Uh, he would join the Alliance months later. He turned uh, on a Raw. I think it was during like when Angle loses the title back to Austin, if memory serves me correct. He was the impetus uh, for that title switch. But this this drew boring chance, and it, it just mm-hmm. wasn't very good. Taz interfering to give Raven the win. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> Raven's WWE run was was not good, and you almost wonder why they even bothered. Yeah, this this match got one fourth of one star in the Observer. <laughs> not good. <laughs> not, Raven not didn't good. look like he was probably in a good place in his life. True. Yes. No. So I'm going to share this. I was oh. told this story one time about Raven's second WWE run. And so, like, it obviously didn't go well. Like, I mean, it was like, he was just kind of, like, just made to feel not important. Like, almost right off the rip. He'd come in uh, fall of 2000, ironically, to help Taz, I think, beat Jerry Lawler was his first appearance. Uh, It was a pay-per-view. I think it was Unforgiven. But anyway, I digress. I was told this once, that Vince McMahon was walking with somebody backstage around around that time period, late 2000, and quipped, 
who the fuck rehired Raven? (laughs) (laughs) My God. I don't know if it's true, but I was told it by a reliable source. I don't know who it's told to, and I don't know who told to the person. So that Johnny Polo. Yeah. Uh, One of my favorite urban legends is that Vince didn't like Raven because when he was Johnny Polo, he would party with Shane all the time. Mm. I, that, that is like one of my favorites that like, you know, Shane and Johnny Polo are just like getting wasted in the mid nineties together. That sounds like a good time, <laughs> but yeah, who the fuck are Raven? <laughs> all right. So yeah, that match is not good. Um, I skipped over something guys that I wanted to address. Cause I Uh-oh. put this in our group text uh, right before that match was the oh. backstage segment with Tori Wilson and Stacey Keebler. <laughs> this is so bad. Just like the acting is horrible. So uh, Tori and Stacey Keebler are going to be in a bra and panties tag team match, which is going to serve as the semi-main event later on. Um, and she talks about, like they start off and there's this close-up of Tori's chest. And she says something about like my voluptuous breasts, and it's like so forced. And then um... many women talk like that, is my understanding. <laughs> so I bad. think that's actually it's my like, wife and her friends. Like... I believe they do that during wine night. They just all dude, say that to each other. Dude, this this segment here is like if you picture a bunch of nerds sitting around that have never been with a woman and picturing how hot women talk to each other that's exactly what this is like this is their ultimate fantasy and this is, it's very bad and i have no doubt that 20 year old justin joint loved this little segment <laughs> probably i probably did as well 17 years old um it doesn't age well you're not going to see something like this on wwf television today you ready tori stace i was born ready you know what it's just too bad the audience is going to have to settle to see trish stratus in her bra tonight they're going to be missing out on these big, voluptuous breasts. Your breasts and my ass. My legs go from here all the way up to here. And no one looks better in panties than me, especially Lita. The only way I could look better would be to be wearing none at all. But since the audience isn't going to see it, I think there might be two people that we could give a private showing to. Mm. Maybe after the show, we can give a private viewing to Matt and Jeff Hardy. Mm-hmm. You know they want us. Stace, <laughs> you do have a firm ass. I know. Again, that's, I believe, how women talk to each other in private. Yes. <laughs> oh, man. Not great. Um, speaking of not great, we get uh, Undertaker Kane and Sarah backstage with Vince McMahon. Um. Yeah, Vince is trying to motivate them, talking about uh, how the EC, how the ECW brand beat down Kane prior. I uh, tells he tells the Undertaker he knows what he has to do. He mentions DDP videotaping Sarah. Uh, at this point, Taker gets pissed. He grabs Vince by the throat, puts him up against the wall. Says he doesn't. Basically, he doesn't need any encouragement. He knows what he has to do, and he walks off. And Vince smiles because that's the Undertaker that he needs. Yeah, that weird smile that Vince does when he's like been abused, but he's like, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> the camera pans down to a tent in his pants. Yeah. <laughs> Choke me more, Mark. <laughs> Choke my chicken. I've been thinking about remaking the intro on our show, and uh, that's a quote that might have to make it. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh that's good 
That's really Please good. Please be dead man. <laughs> the underspeaker. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> so then we go out to the <laughs> Love Vince McMahon with all my heart and soul. <laughs> Except for all the terrible things he's done in life. Oh man. All right. This is when we get that six man tag I mentioned. Big show. Billy Gunn, the one, Alberto. Um Albert, 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 Justin, both suck. Yes. Isn't there something special about Albert? I I think Ryan should refer to him by his, in the proper way here. Give him his proper title. Give him his due. That's intercontinental champion. Unbelievable. (laughs) I had completely forgotten about this until I don't even remember what brought it a few months ago. Like I I must've been just looking through (laughs) icy rains or something. It's like, Albert? <laughs> Albert? One of my favorite texts I have ever received was Justin Joyce saying, why the fuck was Albert the Intercontinental <laughs> Champion in 2001? And I'll say, I don't know, but he was. Oh, especially at this time, I was a huge fan of the IC title. And it's like, mm-hmm. Albert w- goes against everything that an IC champ is. Yeah, it, it was so weird. They had a hard on form. I remember when Lance Storm beat him for the title a few weeks later. Me and Chad were like so fired up because we like hated IC champion Albert, didn't understand that at all. Um, something else I didn't understand during the introduction for this match Michael Cole calls Big Show and the one Billy Gunn, quote, both underrated and underachieving. I don't think that's possible. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of got to be one or the other. Um, I'll tell you what, I didn't like either of those guys in 2001 at all. No. Something I would not have imagined at all, um, you know, 20 years ago is liking Billy Gunn way more in 2021 than I did <laughs> in 2000. I mean, I guess I would have liked him, but, you know, it's hard to hate him anymore than I did in 2001. But whew, just uh, not a strong WWE babyface team uh, in this match. And they lose. Yes. So, yeah, we had Raven win the, the prior match. And then here, Canyon, Hugh Morris, and Stasiak win. So you got... <laughs> Three in a row for the Alliance after uh, Team WWF won the first three. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, Big Show gets his heat back afterwards. Choke slams all the heels. That's mm-hmm. um, just to you know show how worthless those uh, heels are. What a rogues gallery team that is. Sean Stasiak, Chris Canyon, and Hugh Morris. Um, I cannot believe they used Stasiak's knockoff Mr. Perfect theme. Oh, yes. I had that in my notes, too. Not from, good. From Come the on. perfect Sean gimmick. Yeah. Of all the things you're going to continue from WCW, perfect <laughs> Sean. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sean? So this one was four minutes and 23 seconds. Uh, the second match in a row to get one quarter of one star from Dave and the Observer. You know, to, to kind of nail this down a little bit, I think a big problem with these undercard matches is that none of these guys, not just this one, but like, you know, take the the big picture, the whole swath of them. A lot of these guys just didn't do anything meaningful in this angle. I mean, this match really hits at home, but I mean, it was just like, yeah, here's some people. And yeah, they don't, they don't do on, they weren't very big at the time. They don't go on to do anything. So you're just watching it 20 years later and you're like, oh my God. Mm Mm-hmm. Perfect, Sean? <laughs> <laughs> so, 
Okay, after this, we've got um, a backstage segment. Booker T's backstage with Shannon uh, and talks about how... Let's see. What did I write down? Oh, they talk about how they're up four to three because uh, Chavo beat Scotty Tuhati on heat earlier in the night on the, you know, the pre-show Booker T's got the world title on one shoulder, WCW world title, big gold and the WCW us title on his other shoulder. Got to say, I always loved that nineties WCW us title belt. Good looking belt. Um, Booker's. Can you you tell me who, can you tell me who the next United States uh, champion was after Booker Hmm. Over, over the course of the summer? I think I remember. I don't remember. Did he give it to Canyon? Yep. Oh. I have no <laughs> idea what happened to it after that. But I, I, that I, th- was the, I think the jury. Oh, wow. I, I remember we got the who better than Canyon gimmick, which was yep. a real highlight. Never mind. I take back what I said. Rest in peace, Canyon, by the way. I'm a big Chris Canyon fan. Yeah, same here. So uh, and then Tajiri is in William Regal's office. Uh, Regal tries to get him pumped up to take on Taz, and that's our next match, which is Tajiri and Taz, which, of course, two ECW guys back in the day. Uh, here you've got Tajiri with Team WWE and Taz with the Alliance. And, uh, you know, on paper, you would think that this would be a pretty solid match. Um, it's just really rushed. It's five minutes and 43 seconds, which I should mention, it's a 10-match show at a time when they're running three-hour pay-per-views. So you're not going to get a lot of time out there. Taz mostly dominates the match. Um well, until the finish. <laughs> Five minutes and 43 seconds, Tajiri gets the win. It's one and three quarter stars from Dave in the Wrestling Observer. What did you guys think of this one? I, I mean, I was half asleep at this point yeah. <laughs> in the show. I, I was just trying to get to RVD and Hardy. Tajiri wins after the mist. I was also going to mention there's a weird fade out here. We all know now how Peacock has these fade outs because of the commercial breaks. Uh, and I've upped my plan, so I'm not watching commercials anymore, but you still have the fade outs. And they Ooh. inserted the commercial break during Taz's entrance. <laughs> so like Taz's entrance starts with the beeping and everything, and he's about to come out and it goes to a commercial break. And then it comes it fades back in and then he's walking out. Bad placement there. Uh one of the one of the few good things about Taz's time wrestling in WWE was the was the entrance theme. Mm-hmm. But uh yeah. God, God he seemed like he was moving in concrete during this match. He didn't look good at all. No, I didn't think um, I I will. uh, Michael Cole, though, of course, with the immortal line, Taz threw away a great WWE career. (laughs) (laughs) Hello. Yeah. Apparently he wasn't watching the actual television because Taz is, (laughs) I mean, after that Kurt Angle thing at Royal Rumble 2000, it was all downhill. Um, I will say something positive. Love to Jerry during this time period. I thought, Mm -hmm. His debut and the way they did it. If you remember, he was, you know, Regal's assistant to the yep. commissioner. Remember his debut match when he was like begging to get a match and Regal's like, all right, I'll let you wrestle. And the whole thing was like Regal didn't, he just thought he was like, you know, some jabroni who didn't know how to wrestle. And then Tajiri came out and did all these cool moves. And Regal's facial expressions were like so awesome. Like, Whoa! Like it was, it totally made the match. That's something that people should seek out. Tajiri's. Uh, WWF debut on Raw. I really liked it a lot. He was uh, a gem, uh, I thought, during this period. One of my favorite things. Agreed. Agreed. Glad Taz has been able to remind people of his promo ability in AEW, by the way, these days, because he was such a great promo and was not allowed to be during this time period at all. Yeah. 
After that match, we get uh, Matt and Jeff Hardy backstage, and RVD runs in and takes out Matt with a chair shot, screams at Jeff that he's next. We go to WWF New York, remember that place, where we get Hardcore Holly doing a signing. <laughs> and uh, Sky comes up to him, to him wearing a WCW shirt. That's that new WCW logo that Justin Joint loved so much. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> a plant, obviously. Yeah, he comes up and he doesn't even do anything. Like he just stands right in front of Hardcore Holly and just completely emotionless. And Hart, Holly gets pissed. And I wrote down my notes. This is totally believable because this is something Holly would probably really do in real life. I definitely watched it as kayfabe. Yeah. <laughs> the guy has basically no reaction to this whole thing where Holly's like, what are you doing? This is not WCW New York. This is WWF New York. And he rips his shirt and he says, get your ass out of here, you bastard. That's odd. <laughs> it's really it was odd. a very uh, bizarre thing to show, but I, it fit Holly's character. And I kind of laughed. How you doing, buddy? You doing all right? There you go. Take care. I don't know if you realize where you're at right now. This is not WCW New York. This is WWF New York. After that, yes, we get this RVD-Jeff Hardy match. Uh, This is the only title match on the entire show, by the way. It's for the uh, WWF Hardcore title and easily the best match of the show. Mm -hmm. Kyle, you were there. What was it like watching this one from the crowd? Yeah, so I mentioned early on in the podcast uh, all the people outside chanting RVD uh, as we were waiting to get in the building as the you know remnants of the Cleveland Rockers game was being cleaned up, apparently. Uh, I was really looking forward to seeing RVD, and it really wore my heart to see the reaction he got over from the start here. We talked about X-Pac you know, earlier on being like a WWF guy. The crowd was not going to cheer under any circumstances. Well, this is quite the reverse. This is a you know guy from the heel group that people wanted to see. Um, mm-hmm. And whether it was just the hardcores being real loud or what, um rvd was over man and this is the show stealing match and i think this was the closest to the ecw rvd that we got in wwf you know we just did a top rope nation classic last month on one night stand 2006 obviously you guys remember and you know that was you know probably his career peak you know winning the title that was a big deal but you know we kind of joked how cena was the star of that match right even more Mm -hmm. so than rvd here, I mean, this was like the RVD I like. I'm watching this. I'm like, dude, I got to go back and watch some RVD and ECW, like the Jerry Lynn stuff and whatnot, because he just came in, he did his shit, and it got over. Yeah. Yeah, he, he was the star, whether it was his offense or him taking the beating, like the, the power bomb to the outside, which I don't know if we had ever seen that, you know, in WWF before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that might have been the first to his Gary Lynn matches. Yeah, the awesome bomb. Yeah, that Hardy. Yeah, you're right. That probably was the first time that spot had ever been done on WWE television. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this Uh, is this is an awesome match. Four stars in the Observer. I mean, if you're going to watch anything from the show, it's this in the main event, right? mm -hmm. Yeah, go ahead. uh, So, uh, my big takeaways from this: uh, what is it with? There's this like 
three year span where where Jim Ross, every pay-per-view or almost every show has to talk about guys, quote unquote, learning to fall. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> what I, is his deal? This with is that? when the ladder gets tipped over. Yes. Yeah, yep. No, folks, they don't know how to fall, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How do you get yeah. how do you learn to fall off a 20-foot ladder or something? He says that's actually like a I think that was on there. Don't try this at home bumper for a while. Right? Like that clip has been played on something for a long time. But I remember watching. I was like, oh, that's the show this clip's from. But yeah, he would he would always bring up that kind of line of thinking. I love, love, love the way RVD sells the DDT towards the end of the match where he's basically vertical and oh, yeah. must use his arms to pop back straight up. Love that. And also, I. I didn't remember this from the first time I watched it. And obviously this is just history. Is this the only time Jeff Hardy has ever bled in a match? And I'm assuming that's a blade job, not hard way. I don't, he doesn't blade a lot. No, I'm trying to think of like a bloody Jeff. I, it had to have happened at some point, I don't know, but man. I'm struggling to come up with like a famous Jeff Hardy, mm-hmm. you know, bloody match. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know if he played it either. Was it? It might have been hard way. I mean, you know, RVD and his reputation. It, it was after the uh, the chair shot, where, you know, where he, RVD mm-hmm. kicked him. Yeah. I'm not but sure. There, but yeah, you're, he, he's not known for bleeding, though. Yeah. No. Points and the, it made me think it was a blade job because it wasn't very much. And being that he isn't known for that, that maybe he just kind of chickened out on going whole Eddie Guerrero on it. David Allen Meltzer says anything about that. Hardy climbed the left ladder. It may have been hard way. He said he he said he didn't he didn't know. He said so. Van Dam drop kicked a chair into Hardy's face, which seemed to be the spot where Hardy's head split open pretty big. Which may have been a hard way, is what he said. Hmm. So I don't know. But but you're right. Not a lot of blood usually from Jeff Hardy. But um, I think like the big thing that I had also watching this match is you had it. Obviously, a lot of people knew RVD in the crowd but there was other people who didn't and like all of his signature moves were over so big Mm -hmm. to the match. Like, like roll, like matches you would spots. He would do in every match in WWE were over so big. here, like rolling thunder or like the van daminator, obviously when he does that outside the ring, the leg drop to the guardrail. Yes. Yep. Like the crowd is just like, Oh my God, who is this guy? Like they took to him like a superstar Mm -hmm. right away. And it's interesting because WWE clearly knew they had something in him, giving him this kind of platform, his first match, right? Like, hey, we're going to give you the longest match on the undercard. You're going to go over. You know, it's going to be your style of match. And it makes it all the more frustrating how they kneecapped him a couple months later when he was really over and, like, deserved to be at the top of the card. Like, he was one of the great, like, the few successes of this whole invasion angle. I mean, people wanted to cheer for this guy. He was the biggest baby face in the main event at No Mercy. And so it's just like, man, you knew what you had, obviously. But it's like, is this a thing where it's like, well, you can't be over that much. We're not going to push you that much. It was kind of, it probably doesn't make a difference. But to someone like me at that time, where this was all about that shitty looking hardcore title, if it had maybe been for the IC title, and then you go into SummerSlam, a ladder match, that you know, SummerSlam Intercontinental ladder matches kind of have a very nice history. Uh, you give him that spot with Jeff Hardy. I I don't know. Maybe perception wise, it makes a difference. Uh, maybe he gets a better reaction that changes the minds of the office. 
Yeah, well, I don't know. I thought the reaction, he was always getting big. I just think the office didn't want to push him at the top. I think the reaction was there. And I just think the office just was like, no, you're not going to be a top guy, yeah. um, which is just very, very frustrating. And, you know, Meltzer wrote about this uh, at a different point in the observers. Um, I think it was kind of like, a you know, people who subscribe to F4W online. You know, they're, he's in like 2004 right now, the back issues. And I think he wrote about it in one of the more recent back issues, like, there was like a criticism from like fellow wrestlers. Oh, RVD matches. They lack psychology. Well, you know, who doesn't give a fuck about that? All the people who like Rob Van Dam, <laughs> which was a lot of free. Yes. Cause he yeah. it was a unique style and it was mm-hmm. like the whole thing. Like, Oh, well we're not going to, cause you know, he doesn't do like, normal. well, like he was different and the crowd always loved Rob Van Dam. It was just so like, I was a big Rob Van Dam guy uh, around this period. And it was, I was so happy to see him win and get this platform and, and get the reaction he did. That's one of the complaints even to this day about WWE is that everyone works the same. That's why he stood out because he was so much different. And yet they really dropped the ball on him. I mean, he was a guy that could be a main eventer at even at this point moving forward. And I think if you watch that icons episode on him, like he realizes it too when he oh, goes through yeah. that period of his career. Like it's almost like not to the extent of what they were doing with Matt Riddle, where he was just like the guy who was high all the time backstage with the goofy promos and stuff. But like it was almost like a predecessor to how they booked Matt Riddle, you know, recently. Like he was just kind of the goofy guy backstage. And yeah, but the crowd freaking loved him, man. He was like always at the live shows I would go to during that period, house shows and stuff. He was always one of the most over, if not the most over guys on the card easily. And it's just it's kind of mind blowing that they never put him in that that world title picture until you know, way later, which we talked about on last month's classics. And then that got derailed because of weed. Really? I mean, well, he, he was in the world title picture, though, too. It, it, no mercy. I'll get, yeah, well, but I mean, like actually getting a world title reign. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I agree because I remember it was him, Angle, and Austin, and people wanted him to win that match. Yeah. Yeah. Like very badly. Remember, like Vince McMahon endorsed him on the last TV. There was kind of this thing, but then you know he just he didn't, and then he kind of got like he does get the IC title, made a good run, and then of course he ran into Hunter in O mm-hmm. two, and we know what happens there. But man, just freaking love RVD. Yeah. All right, so after this, what do we get next? So that's a, can, that's a really good it. one. Yeah, we can skip the next one. Well, we <laughs> we should talk about Vince in the locker room with Kurt Angle because this this show is transitioning Kurt Angle into a top babyface, right? So we're seeing kind mm-hmm. of like the transformation of Kurt Angle uh, throughout the show, and then certainly with the finish. Uh, but Kurt, you know, does his best to talk about. He says, "Enough with this Americana bullshit." <laughs> and he's talking basically he's going to go out and kick some ass tonight and do it for team WWF. Kurt, you've got to be in the right frame of mind for this inaugural brawl. You've got to think about the beating you took on SmackDown this past Thursday. You've got to think about all of those things. You've got to think about your role in leadership, Kurt. You got to think about your country. You got to think about the the American flag, the red, white and blue old glory think about the oh oh hold on a second enough of this americana bullshit do you know what i did in the 1996 olympics vince i know exactly what you did you won the gold medal i kicked some serious ass which is what i'm gonna do tonight and sure 
I'm going to do it for my country. And I'm going to do it for my company. But most of all, I'm going to do it for me. Oh, it's true. It's damn true. Uh, I mean, he's pretty effective, I think, in this role. And, uh, you know, despite what they did with Austin, him and Austin have some really good matches. Oh, yeah. I mean, the yeah. match in SummerSlam is tremendous. But, yeah. you know, I think you guys would agree. I think most people would agree. Um, you know, this invasion storyline is like the perfect way to turn Kurt Angle babyface. Yeah. You know, because he's used to heel character. But for him to be like, no, I'm standing up for WWF. That's a great way to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just read the first sentence of uh, <laughs> your notes, Kyle, in the next match. <laughs> um, this is the Braun Panties <laughs> match. Trish Stratus and Lita taking on uh, Tori Wilson and Stacey Keeler. We mentioned the awkward uh, backstage segment earlier. And uh, not much to talk about here. <laughs> I believe this was the first ever Braun Panties match, they said. Which, um, well, there you go. Um, look, we know what the point of this match was. And... <laughs> yes. Um, uh, Meltzer, <laughs> well, let's, let's read Dave's comments on this match rather than make our own and get us ourselves in trouble. Uh, should also mention Nick Foley referee. Yeah. He just came back out. Yeah. That was weird. Um, uh, but Dave said Keebler didn't seem that happy about being in her bra. Like her parents actually didn't encourage her to be a stripper growing up. <laughs> what the? <laughs> oh, yeah, he goes on to say match was long enough to where they actually tried some wrestling between the clothes ripping, and that was predictably <laughs> awful. Yeah, it was, yeah, they would do spots, and then it was like, oh, and then they pull a pant. I, I, I don't know. What can you say? It's It was 2001, and we don't do this anymore. <laughs> Pre-women's revolution, that is for sure. All right, main event time. <laughs> <laughs> I just texted. I just, I just messaged Justin my notes. Oh, that's, you just seen that first sentence there? Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. who can disagree? We can't. I can't. I can't disagree with your note there. But um, we'll save that. That'll be private. Maybe it'll, it'll be a. Maybe this will be up as a show notes, and uh, I might want to re- might want to edit this before I put up the show notes. But uh, all right, moving on. <laughs> so, uh, Austin backstage uh so kyle take it away because what you said here makes me even matter about what they did okay so vince has been meeting with all the team wwe guys and he meets with austin and austin just cuts this fire promo an old school steve austin promo and the crowd is so into it and i'm watching this and i'm like is it just like wrestlemania 17 is nobody running around backstage saying Turning this guy is going to be really dumb. Yeah. Because the reaction from the live audience to the promo and the reaction he gets when he's introduced. I mean, what is the thought process behind? Yeah, this guy should be a heel. What I want to know is, 
who's pushing this, pushing for this? Because we know at WrestleMania 17 that Austin wanted to turn heel. He's the one who wanted to turn heel. But then I'm pretty sure Bruce mentioned in the podcast about this show that this, or, you know, the previous Raw and this match, the reaction he got kind of made, you know, ignited a spark in him. Uh, that that's what he said. So what was it? Austin trying wanting to try and keep this heel run going or was it uh, Vince McMahon being stubborn? I don't know. And I don't know if it's a deal where it's like, Hey, we've got, you know, this angle that we want to do with WCW, this invasion angle, and we need a lead heel because we don't think the heel side's strong enough. And, we don't want to admit the Austin heel turn was wrong at WrestleMania. So we're just going to merge the two things. That sounds because, right. Because the, the plan was, as Ryan mentioned at the top of the show, Steve Austin was going to feud with Triple H in the summer of 2001. And that got thrown out the window when Triple H tore his quad. So I think it was just like, well, the original plan was Austin as a heel. All the original ideas we had for that are now gone. We're doing this invasion thing. We need to balance out the face heel side, so Austin's going to be a heel. That's what they were thinking. They were they were looking for yeah the main event programs moving forward because he was going to be working against Angle, he was going to be working against Rock, and he was going to be working against Triple H when he returned. All faces, and you know, and you can totally see their perspective coming into this match and looking at the alliance needing some star power, but to, in order to make this thing continue. All you needed to do was pick anybody other than Steve Austin to keep it going. Um, I don't know if we've ever actually brought it up on the podcast. I know we've uh, talked about about it behind the scenes, but Kyle, could you bring up your fantasy booking uh, coming out of King of the Ring? What yeah. you thought they should have yeah. done? So if they're going to turn someone, it should have been Jericho, I yes. think, because based on... First of all, Jericho was an actual WCW guy. I know Austin was a WCW guy once upon a time, but come on. Okay. (laughs) I I don't think anyone considered Steve Austin a WCW guy anymore in 2001. Nor was that ever acknowledged. He went to ECW solely to run down WCW. Yes. And and Jericho had his problems too, but he was still kind of fresh off the boat, as they say, um, in some circles. So I would have done it with him. So if, I, I, we were talking about this maybe off air. Maybe we've mentioned on the show or not. So Austin and Jericho and Benoit won up the King of the Ring main event the month before. What I would have done, this is just an idea, is take – because Benoit was hurt after that match. He probably mm-hmm. didn't even need to work the match. He, he was out for a year. Have him mysteriously taken out by somebody, okay? And it just comes down to Austin and Jericho in the main event. And do a double turn where Booker T comes out and helps Jericho win the title, and Jericho is WCW. You don't have to do that. Again, the numbers show that people were just fine with the idea of what they had coming into the show. The key is you just can't double down with this Austin heel turn. As bad as it was at WrestleMania 17, him turning heel. I'll concede, I don't know what else you do at that show, right? Like, that's the big what if. It's like, okay, because, like, you know, Bruce will say, well, why do you, what do you do at WrestleMania 17 if you don't turn Steve Austin heel? Maybe we could talk I mean, We could talk about that now. I was thinking about it. What if that's how you start the invasion? Austin just wins as a babyface. 
and all those WCW guys in the box come down and just storm the ring and beat the crap out of both of them. And that's how WrestleMania ends. I think, I think after invasion with a heel Austin, you gotta let him grow that Hulk Hogan hair and just go <laughs> stunning Steve Austin. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, well, what do you think? I mean, is that like, I mean, I don't know. I mean, you, it's water under the bridge. As bad as that heel turn was at WrestleMania, you're okay. I think this number shows you're okay and you recovered just by turning a baby face. It's just, mm-hmm. uh, you've got to swallow your pride and say, we fucked up and we, we're going to go back to the old Stone Cold mm-hmm. and he's just going to feud with the Booker T's and the DDP's and we'll get the bigger names in and he, like Goldberg eventually. I could talk about that a little bit. And you know, he, that's who he's going to feud with is because that's what the crowd wanted. The reaction to Steve Austin on this show, nobody wanted to boo this man. And if you look at the pay-per-view numbers, even when he was out and would make appearances at the pay-per-views in 2000, there is no anecdotal evidence that supports the crowd was getting bored with this man. Look at two, you, you, you want to talk about the power of Steve Austin. There's two numbers you need to look at from 2000 backlash and unforgiven. He did not wrestle on either of those shows. He made appearances on those shows. Okay. Backlash, he uh, interfered to help Rock beat Triple H. And Unforgiven, they were doing the Who Hit Me storyline. And he was going to like confront Shane McMahon or something like that. Let me tell you about the power of Steve Austin, even in a non wrestling capacity in the year 2000. Backlash 2000 had 675,000 buys. The previous year's Backlash, which had Austin Rock, a red hot match. I know Ryan, you've talked about that with uh, Zach over at the torch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That show did 398,000 buys. The following year's backlash did 375,000 buys. So you're looking at a 300,000 buy increase just because people were that jacked to see Steve Austin back on WWE television after a four month absence for another four month absence. He comes back at unforgiven. Okay. For that angle with shame. That show does 605,000 buys. The previous year's Unforgiven did 330. The next year's Unforgiven, which is during the middle of this invasion angle, did 350. (laughs) So, like, I know 2000's a red-hot year, but those were the two hottest B-shows that they had. And it was just because Steve Austin showed up. There was no evidence. It's quite to the contrary. People wanted to cheer this man still. Until the end of time, he never should have turned heel. Ever. He was Bruno. He was a folk hero. It was not Hogan in 96 when that audience in WCW didn't want it, didn't like that he was there in the first place. Mm-hmm. It was so different. And they wanted to recreate that NWO magic, and it was stupidity. Plus, Hogan had been faced for 12 years versus Austin, like three. Yes. When he turned, you know, like it yes. was definitely not out of steam at all. Yeah. It's brutal when you look at it and you see they're in the situation at, at Invasion where they could have got out of it. They had to have known at the time it was a bad decision. Business was going down. Like, here you, here you go. You know, here's your uh, mulligan. Take it. Yeah. They did. They doubled down on the heel turn. And you read the numbers earlier about mm. the increase from the previous three months' pay-per-views. They were all hovering around 400000 Yeah. This did seven seventy. People <laughs> wanted to cheer Steve Austin. As a, I, I just... It is shocking to me um, how, you know, this is not harped on more. I mean, there's like smart people on message boards who will be like, oh, I think like the Steve Austin heel one is like the best. Oh, it's God. like, it's like it had great matches and he yeah. did great character work. 
no one's going to deny that. But like, you've got to put aside the fact that it completely killed business. It is a real dividing line between me and a lot of fans. Like, I, I just, uh, I just don't understand why you would do it. I, it is the single WrestleMania 17 was bad. This yes. is the single dumbest booking yes. decision ever made in the history of the company. What they did at Invasion, turning him heel, and it, here's, it makes no sense. Too. Look, look how they executed it. He yeah. wrestles against them the whole match, and then he yeah. just turns. Yeah. For no reason. He just yeah. turns at the end of the match. He beats the shit out of all these people and then joins them. Makes no sense. Yeah. <sighs> um, you know, another thing that caught my eye um, is the Vince-Shane dynamic here compared to WrestleMania 17. You talk about lack of long-term planning. When they did the angle with... The name says McMahon, but it says Shane McMahon. Do you think they were in three months thought they were going to be here with Shane leading a heel group and Vince McMahon was going to be a babyface? Nope. <laughs> no. Well. So I mean that that just is you know uh, reminiscent of no long term planning. Um, I thought Stephanie's dancing to Booker T's music made her look like a real nerd. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is like <laughs> the McMahon stuff, obviously. It worked with Austin, which probably encouraged them to have the whole family involved for much too long to this very day. Uh, You know, Shane and Vince, (laughs) they had their moments in the, in the lead up to WrestleMania. Stephanie, I mean, whatever. This is like to have the McMahons attached to all these groups is just freaking cringeworthy. Like we don't need the McMahons out there. Maybe yeah, Vince WWF, I guess, but like having each child with a brand, it's overkill, man. That's just not good. Yeah. I didn't think that worked either. Um, you know, I think they should have all been together. WrestleMania 17 should have been the death of the Mr. McMahon character. I mean, he was a baby face here, obviously, but like they, you know, I, it's just the feuding McMahons needed to end. At that yes. point. And, and like, honestly, them all being together and like trying to thwart the invading heel promotion would have kind of got over the gravity of the situation. That would have made way more sense. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, just yeah, have Heyman leading the whole group. And yeah. I, I would have I would have paid to bring Bischoff in, which they did a year later anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I could talk about that. That's what people wanted. They didn't I would have given it more legitimacy that it was the real WCW too, because we talked about they were missing the big names. If you can't get the wrestlers, at least get Eric in there. Yeah. I mean I mean, you know, Bischoff and Heyman on the same team would certainly have been an interesting dynamic <laughs> behind the scenes. That would have been something to observe. But um yeah, I, I there were just a lot of problems here and you know, people say, oh, it's easy to play armchair quarterback. Now, man, this stuff was, you know, at the time I thought was pretty obvious. Yes. I'm going mm-hmm. going to the show. I was telling Chad, I was like, dude, they cannot. Because the, the rumor was that they were going to turn Austin to lead the heel group. It was out there. And I was like, man, that would be so dumb. <laughs> that would be so dumb. And I'm like, and I just remember watching it from the crowd. And like, people are going to think I'm being overly dramatic here. I like the world just went in slow motion for a second. When I saw, I was like, oh no, he's turning. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh no. And like the, just the air just came out of that building at the finish, right? Like the crowd didn't really know how to react. Like yeah. some people were still cheering him. Mm-hmm. That was like the only reaction he got. Um, it, it, it was, it was, it's very bad. I mean, the crowd was up for the match. It felt like a big time match. 
Um, it just the execution was very bad. The the pre match promo was really good. Um, you had this in your notes too, Kyle, about Freddie Blassie. I forgot that Freddie yes. Blassie came in to give like this hype speech to the locker room uh, for Team WWF. Uh, if you go from the end of the prior match, the, the tag team women's match, to the start of this match, it takes a long time. Like there's that it's a really good pre match promo. It's pretty extensive. The entrances take a really, really long time. And then you finally get to the match. But every single one of those entrances, the crowd pops like massively mm-hmm. for all of them. Jericho gets a gigantic reaction when he comes out. That was one that really stood out to me. Uh, and then when the match goes, it's like a half hour match. Crowds with them the whole way. I would say if you're rewatching this, like really the last 10 minutes is all you need to see. And maybe watch the entrances because the entrances are pretty good. But uh, the last 10 minutes is like the that's where everything really, you know, gets going. Yeah. Spe- go speaking of entrances, it was entirely built on a on a hero's welcome for Austin where yep. everybody started brawling and then his music comes out and he comes out and starts whipping ass. Mm-hmm. Still using that disturbed remix. Ugh. Not not a huge fan of that, but yeah. You know, there was towards the end of the match before he turns. So Meltzer had some very interesting remarks about this, and I want to get to it. So they're doing this thing where Austin's outside the ring and the refs are looking at him, and he's, like, holding his knee. Mm -hmm. But the announcers aren't talking about it, right? You'd think that would be a real – if you're an announcer, you'd think that would be like, oh, my God, is Austin hurt? Our guy, Austin, no, he's hurt, he's hurt. But they're not – the camera's showing it, but they're not bringing it up on commentary and i wanted to read uh this little passage from the observer because i thought it was very very interesting uh okay for some reason this was never acknowledged i can't believe something so important was missed so it appeared they now have the mindset that if they ignore important parts of the match that fans will think quote aha the announcers aren't talking about it, even though we are seeing it. So it must be real. This is back to Meltzer. They need to be thinking about the other 95% of the audience. What do you think about that? Because hmm. I think Dave is spot on with that analysis. Like the idea that the announcers are just going to not mention it. Oh, people are like, maybe he's really hurt. I just yeah, dumb. Yeah, that jumped out at me too. It's like e- either way, whether it's part of the story or if it's real you got to mention it if it's part of the match what would a real commentator say if somebody was holding their (laughs) knee and they show multiple times like they're cutting back and forth to that yeah i think myself watching it at the time that probably would have went through my head like is he really hurt but yeah the vast majority of the audience was not going to be thinking that way so it's it's not a great way to uh to run the product because they're 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 keeping like the most hardcore people that are always thinking about what's going on behind the scenes type of people in mind when that is, especially at that time, that was nowhere close to the majority of the fans tuning in. Nope. And all the people they weren't playing to started turning off in droves. After yes. This. Yeah. So uh, I did think the way I'll say one positive thing about the match, the way the end was structured to get Kurt angle over as a baby face definitely worked. Mm-hmm. They just should not have had so cold <laughs> steve austin turn heel i just i can't say that enough it's just it's just unbelievably dumb to do yeah. 
basically like all around ringside at the finish of this match everybody is getting taken out we get like a choke slam through the announce table there's a there's a table spot on the outside and like everyone's laid out and we get down you know Austin's been selling his knee, which they're not <laughs> referencing. And then uh, we get down basically to uh, Booker T and Kurt Angle in the ring. And um, Angle eventually hits the ankle slam and he gets him in the ankle lock. And of course, Booker's tapping, but the referees have been taken out. Um, and then we have Austin all of a sudden jump into the ring and he throws uh, Mike Kyoto in the ring. And then he gives Angle the stunner out of nowhere puts booker on top orders mike kyota to count the pinfall which he does austin has now helped the guys who he was beating up for 30 minutes win the match (laughs) and he uh ends the show by drinking beer with shane steph and paul Heyman. yeah (laughs) the crowd is very confused and jim ross is like overselling it so much it reminded me just it reminded me just of the end of wrestlemania 17 to what it's just like Jim, you're trying, man, but the crowd ain't buying it. The crowd just yeah. is not buying it. it. It was just very bad. And I have another quote from Meltzer. I'd like to, you know, this will end my notes. Um, but good and bad on this show is something best determined in a few weeks by if the Austin Angle draws money this time. And as I said, SummerSlam 2001 with the return of The Rock did 200,000 fewer buys than this show Unbelievable. with DDP, Booker T, Rhino, and the Dudleys as your main heel group. People just wanted to see Steve Austin fight WCW guys, and they wanted to cheer him to do it, and they didn't get it. And it is, like I said, I think the worst booking decision this company has ever made. You know, we joke about bad booking now. But like the reality is, and this is kind of sad, it doesn't even matter in 2021, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're just like, oh, that sucked. But like the alternative probably isn't like going to do anything much better anyway. Like the boneheaded booking decisions of this era, like cost this company millions of dollars. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like millions. And it, it just, it just, it's head scratching. What was, what they possibly could have been thinking here. Um, if you're looking for a way for the heel team to win, which they should have on this, and Steve Austin to stay babyface. Here's a fantasy booking idea. I would have paid Bill Goldberg to come in early. I would have yes. I, I would have broke the bank to bring him in. And I know Bruce, oh, he didn't want to wrestle. Stop it. You tell me if you offer him the biggest match of his career, he's not going to take it. And he's going to make more money than his Turner, than his Time Warner deal. If you pay him and then you know, the pay-per-view does what you think with Austin and Goldberg on top. I would have had Goldberg debut here, spear Austin. Yes. Um, and then WCW wins. Like with Bish, I would have had Bischoff and Goldberg debut at this show. And, and that's what I would have done. And you've so, got a red hot angle and the Hogan's of the world are going to be desperate to join in and you're going to get them at a discount of rate. That's what I, I was going to ask you to bring this up if, if, if you weren't going in that direction. And then my question was going to be is what kind of number does SummerSlam do with Austin Goldberg headlining after this show? You would have to think it's going to go up. I mean, it it would have been, it would have done even better. I I mean, they're going to top 800,000, right? I mean, 900,000 and and whatever you had to pay Goldberg to come in, it's basically paid off on that one show. Yes. 
Yeah. So so Mania the next year with um that's X eight. So you get Rock Hogan that showed at eight hundred and forty thousand buys. So I feel like Austin Goldberg is going to be in that neighborhood. I know it's not a WrestleMania, but it's SummerSlam. Uh, yeah, eight eight nine hundred thousand. I think is pretty fair. And can you even imagine? Like I'm trying to think back to you know watching I wrestling. I think it would have done more to be honest with you. I do too. I th- Dude, I that would have it- been insane. Dude, that would have been think- so awesome. And I am like, not a Goldberg fan. <laughs> that would have been awesome. Dude, I think it would. If I say it would have topped a million, I mean, are you going to laugh me out of the place? No, I mean, it would have been close because that was the ultimate dream match. Yes. You know, like they got to X8 and, you know, everyone talks about icon versus icon. But like Rock Hogan was never a match bandied about as a dream match. Nobody ever talked about that match. Maybe I'm off. I never heard anyone say, no, I agree you, know, with you. you know what? Yeah. I want to see Rock and Hogan like people talked about Hogan and Austin, but Rock Hogan was never the dream match. And it's still mm-hmm. Did 840,000 buys, but like during 97, 98, 99, it was Austin Goldberg. And if mm-hmm. you fucking do that match, oh, I can't like you guys, you've listened to the show, you know, I'm not a Goldberg fan, but my God, just from a business perspective, if this show ends, how you just pitch that with Goldberg coming out with Eric Bischoff and spearing Steve Austin and they're wrestling at SummerSlam. Holy shit. <laughs> I, I, I can't believe we just heard Ryan Drosty swear. That's how good, <laughs> yeah, this, yeah, is. Yeah, That's how good this is. Hey, man, I, I do it for the Patreon. Just. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I just think that, and, you know, like heel Goldberg in WWF just like is very appetizing mm-hmm. to oh, yeah. me. Like, you know, because again, they taught their audience, they meaning WWF, to hate the WCW guys. They taught their audience that Goldberg was an Austin imposter. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. And like, if he comes out and they just, I mean, my God, how fire are those promos going to be? You're yeah. right, Kyle. There is no way he turns that down. Like, Bill, there's no way. Like, going to come hey, and work Austin at SummerSlam. This is the kind of money we're going to cut. There's no way he turns what that down. What was he being paid by? Do, didn't like Stuart share that on the Facebook page? Yeah, like, we had that. We, we were going through on a show recently. Hold on. Uh, what was, what was he being paid? I, I want to know what he was being paid. To sit out because he doesn't come in until 2000. He, to be fair, like that's the thing, he had like the longest deal because, mm-hmm. like, you know, like when they bring the NWO guys and their deals were like running out with Time War, like the Hogan's and what and Hall and Nash, their deals had run out, and like the same with Scott Steiner in 2002. But like Goldberg didn't come in until right after 19. Yeah, like, I mean, it was like it was like a full almost like a full two years yeah. that he was he was paid. Um. I what believe you- he was like two and a half million from what I'm seeing. Ooh, that's a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a big deal. Ooh, I didn't know that much. Ooh, well, he, well, hold on. Hold on. Let me read this. You're paying him uh, two and a half million? Really? I'm looking at the like the scan on uh, Harrington's website of his contract. Yeah. Bill Goldberg. Start date July 1st, 99. End date June 30th, 03. So, yeah, two and a half million year one, year two, year three, year four, three and a half million. That's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. I mean, when did he come in, though? Did he come in right after June 03? Is that right? Right right after WrestleMania. So he didn't he he did not stay all those days. This is that can't be right then. So he must have got out of it like a few months early or something to get. And because what 19 would have been April of 03. 
yeah march or so yeah like that yeah. like late march early april yeah i mean he, it's the night after right mm-hmm. that he, he spears That's rock right. yeah I, um i don't know man i just think that like you've got to make you like there's a way to make i mean dude i don't know i mean would it set the record i mean we're talking we were talking like nine hundred thousand seems like lowballing dude like i agree i think like i mean is it good could it do 1.1 million Man, I would love to hear him on a podcast get pitched this idea and ask, just ask him if he would have done it. Would he have considered it? That'd be super interesting to hear. Yeah. Man, I don't know. I'm I'm still that, that is a lot. And I can see, I mean, the big thing with Vince not wanting to, he didn't want to upset the Apple cart, obviously, and pay WCW guys more than he was paying his own guys. Now, Austin, the key was with merchandise, he was making way more than that, right? Like at his peak, he was doing like over 10 million a year with merchandise. So, okay. So this is what I found. He, uh, yeah, he was not, he had a significant amount with, with Time Warner. Um, he remained under contract until May 02 when he agreed on a contract buyout. He was WCW's highest paid athlete, uh, two and a half million per year, a sum which would have risen to three and a half million in the final year of his contract, Mm. which would have expired in July of 03. But he, May 02 agreed on a contract buyout. Okay. That that would have been an expensive buyout to get him to come in for SummerSlam 01. Yeah, it would have been. I mean, yeah. I mean, if he's making two and a half million, you're gonna I mean Do you give like like I know WWF didn't really do this, but WCW was doing it. Like, do you give him a percentage of the pay-per-view money for that show because it's gonna do such a high number? Yeah, I mean, I think maybe that's how you do it. You just I I don't know. I mean, it, it's just it's interesting. I, you're right. I would love to hear that pitch to him. Like, is there any avenue where you would have considered doing this? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, from WWF's perspective, that's the way to make the invasion work. Or, I mean, I don't know. I mean, even if you don't do Goldberg and you wait a little bit to do it, I just think there was a way, like, even if Jericho was the guy who turned on this, like, if they hadn't done what I said the month before where they did a double turn at King of the Ring, like, Jericho could have turned in this Mm -hmm. match. I think he just... Like Justin said, the key is you've got to keep this thing going with not turning Steve Austin heel. That's the key. Well, let's consider this too. So 01 was the year that the XFL launched. Oh, and... <laughs> oh you feed this into my veins, Ryan Frosty. I mean, we're talking about a significant amount of money for Bill Goldberg, two and a half million per year, three and a half million that last year to buy out, to sweeten the pot, to get him to come over and not sit at home making that kind of money. Vince McMahon lost $35 million on the XFL in 2001. And just and for those of you who may be a little young and have forgotten, the XFL, by that ride, means a shitty secondary football league. <laughs> I mean, if he was what? willing to fucking lose $35 million on the yeah. XFL, you're telling me this guy could pony up the money for Austin Goldberg at SummerSlam 01. I mean, again, what would you rather have, wrestling fans? Bill Goldberg versus Austin at SummerSlam 2001 or a shitty secondary football league? Or how about this one? A fucking restaurant in Times Square that served cardboard (laughs) on the menu. (laughs) I mean, how much do they lose on that? Right? Yeah. We can't pay Bill Goldberg, but we're, you know, you have this shitty restaurant and a shitty football league. Uh, for uh, first Google result I'm seeing says he lost 25 million on WWF New York, but that might not be accurate. It was the first one I'm seeing though. Okay, but still, 
That's like minus $60 million. He's a 60 in the <laughs> hole. I don't think Bill Goldberg would have lost you $60 million at SummerSlam. Oh, man. You're going to make it amazing. And you can sweeten the pot with Austin. I know you're going to have some people that are kind of salty, but like, guess what, guys? You're <laughs> We put you against Steve Austin and you didn't draw that. Mm-hmm. Wow. Sorry, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Your pay-per-view did 375,000 buys. <laughs> How's your territory doing? Oh, man. Sorry, Mark. <laughs> Mark, go. Here's here's a bonus. Get rid of that shitty tattoo on your neck. Yeah. Oh, man. All right. Well, yeah, Invasion 01, it, it's a story of what if, kind of. Because for one night, people tuned in. Massive pay-per-view buy rate. A great Jeff Hardy, Rob Van Dam match. Uh, and people were amped up for that main event. Terrible booking decision at the end, but you know, either way, a historical show. It's one that, uh, even though it might not be a great pay per view, it was something good to cover here on Top Rope Nation Classics yeah. because it's a great discussion. Like all of this stuff is great fodder for discussion. That's what makes a good podcast. And we appreciate you all supporting us, making these bonus shows possible every single month we got quite the library of them now in the archive as i talked about at the top so um check them out recommend them to a friend uh guys anything else before we close up shop you wanted to hit i think that was pretty much it all right and remember guys everything i said on this show was right i know because i was there (laughs) (laughs) yes he was yes he was so this has been the 20th edition of top rope nation classics we'll be back next month get those august suggestions in a pay-per-view that happened during the month of august in pro wrestling history preferably something on peacock so that we can watch it along with all of you and get your feedback Uh, let us know i'll have a post up uh, real soon over on the patreon page for the those suggestions and then we'll put the poll out like we always do for justin joint and kyle ross i'm ryan drasty see you all next month Take care. Thank you for your support. Just cost me